You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. a funny hat. <laughs> I always wear this hat. So much, it's a part of my name now. My friends, my very, very best friends, they just call me Rose the Hat. From the chilling halls of the Overlook Hotel, I bid you welcome to the binge movie aftertaste, Shining Retrospective. Now, by God, you are going to take your medicine. Listen in as Garrett. Wendy, I'm home. Matt. Are you out of your fucking mind? And Adam. I love the little son of a bitch. (laughs) Continue their look at the film adaptations of author Stephen King's work. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. From Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Words of wisdom, Lloyd. Words of wisdom to the tv miniseries directed by mick garris this doesn't have to be painful Wendy. all the way to mike flanagan's doctor sleep don't worry that's my friend the boys look at the hotel halls and wonder if there are indeed ghosts in the overlook's walls she called it shiny how did adam see the original shining for the very first time that is uh, quite a story is the miniseries worth King's efforts to overthrow Kubrick's original vision? Wrong! And how the hell did Mike Flanagan make nice of King and Kubrick's estates with his movie, Dr. Sleep? And for a long time, I thought it was just the two of us that had to shine to us. Come play with us, listeners, and find out the answers to all these questions and more All coming up, courtesy of Binge Media. No, stay, stay a while. See more magic. Stephen King's The Shining. Aired April 27th to May 1st, 1997, and the recipient of the first ever TV Guide 10 out of 10 score, by the way. And this was directed by Mick Garris. The first of many times we'll be talking about Mr. Garris on this retrospective. I am joined by new father, new everything, new I don't know what day it is anymore, Mr. Matthew Goudreau. What's up, Matt? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start the show by doing something I've never done before. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. And old father, but still probably no less days spent... Not able to sleep, the one and only, Mr. Adam Bunch. What's up, Adam? God damn it. I didn't bring a sound effect. Um, <laughs> sorry. My, my, there we my go. My bottle's already opened. 
And uh, apparently we need that in order to get through this because none of us are going through AA right now. But what a movie this was. You look at the title of this, Stephen King's The Shining. Screenplay by Stephen King. Produced by Stephen King. Cameo by Stephen King. This is a big fuck you to Stanley Kubrick. You know, we're going to see this guy's ego get out of control next year when we cover Night Shift. But holy shit, this... What a fucking movie this is. Matt, have you... We, we just covered M. Night Shyamalan on this show. Have you ever seen an ego as big as Stephen King's when we watched this movie? Shyamalan definitely gives him a run for his money. But as far as a, like a singular piece com- comparing, the closest thing I could think of that we've reviewed on the show is actually Wes Craven's new nightmare as far as oh. the, just the sheer magnitude of the spite involved in this entire production from the, from the inception on that. That's the, the most amicable comparison I could make. And my God, you only have to look at the runtime of this just to feel how much of a middle finger this was for Stephen King on Every front, we're talking over four hours without commercial breaks. With commercials, you're probably adding another, I don't know, half hour combined. So you have to devote four hours of your time to a book that, let's be honest, it's a good size. It takes you a little bit of time to read, but this is not it. This is not The Stand. This is not The Dark Tower. So I think the only reason this is as long as it is is because he wanted to be as literal as possible. And to the, to the integer as possible, we'll definitely divulge our thoughts on that throughout this show. So I would say outside of Shyamalan, Wes Craven could probably give Stephen King a run for his money as far as, like, comparing the height of their just their egos. And gentlemen who I was in the midst of a very big friendship with back in 1997, Mr. Adam Bunch. Adam, yeah. what do you remember about this miniseries before I get into what I went through when this thing was coming out. You know, I remember the only time I had watched this before we, I did it for, for this here was when I watched it back in its original airing. And I remember when that came, um, when that came to first huge, huge fan of wings at the time, second huge, huge fan of Rebecca de Mornay at the time Mm. (laughs) for loads of reasons. But I came out of that going, fuck that movie. This is the shining. And that was my thought 20, and think about it now, almost 25 years ago. Jesus Christ. And it's been 25 years since. However, for those that listened last week, as we discussed, my views on Stanley Kubrick's The Shining flipped around tremendously. I think I was a little too generous. You know, I gave it a nine. I might have been, you know, might have been caught up in a little bit of alcohol at the end. Maybe an eight would have been better based that I had some issues. But I obviously came around on that, and it was in, it's going to be interesting to discuss if I uh, if I feel the same way now or if reality is set in on this one. Yeah, we, me and you had those discussions. Oh, yeah, we, <laughs> we did. had a lot of those discussions. But here's the thing about this series. Now, this was an interesting part of my life. Adam, you remember somebody I used to date by the name of Heather, correct? Yes, I do. All right, so I was not able to watch this live. I, I might have been working. I, I In fact, I was. I was working two jobs at that time. I was working at grocery store, and I was working at a video store at the same time. So I was not able to watch this. So this was back before DVRs, before all of that, 
and I told her, I said, can you record this series for me? It's three nights. I need you to record this, and then we could probably just watch it together. She goes, okay, I could do that. First night, she ended up recording. We watched it. Second night, she ended up recording. Um, we didn't get to watch that. And then the third night, she didn't record. So <laughs> I had two of three parts of this, okay? So I took the tape home, and I watched the second part. I have never seen the third part until this fucking show. Oh, wow. Because I watched that teaser, and I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Went and bought the DVD when it was at Suncoast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But still, even though I had it in my possession, after I saw the end of that second part, I had no inkling to finish it. I just didn't want to watch it. I saw those hedge animals coming after him in that CGI, coming after this little boy, and I'm like, fuck this. I'm not going to finish this anyway. I'm glad she didn't record this. So this was the first time I'd ever seen the end of this, was for this <laughs> retrospective. So when me and you got in those arguments, I was like, fuck this. Like, <laughs> I, I can't do this. I cannot do this. So how did this come about? Well, The Shining comes out, and as we mentioned last week, King, when it was initially out, he said, I, it's okay. You know, but then he did this Playboy interview in 1983, and it was in that interview where he first said, you know, I would like to redo it. I would like to do it in my own vision. I, w I like to do with more of the supernatural parts. He was already talking about remaking this even in 1983. Years go by, and, you know, we're, we're covering King in the order of publication, not in order of airing. By this time, King was king of ABC. He had The Stand. He had The Langoliers. Okay, not a good movie, but still, it, it was a ratings hit, and... ABC came to him and said, what do you want us to do? What do you want to do? King said, I want to redo The Shining. And they cut him a check. But he still had to get permission because Kubrick was the one who had the rights still. So he got the rights. However, there was a clause in his contract that said he could not badmouth The Shining anymore. The movie version. Couldn't badmouth it. <laughs> so if you notice, in interviews around the mid-90s, King was coming out saying it wasn't too bad. It was kind of disturbing. I mean, he was starting to say good things about this in the press. And then I think right after Kubrick died, I think he said, fuck it, and he just went right back after him. So <laughs> he w fought really hard to get these rights. He got them, and this is what he came up with. Matt, had you seen this before this retrospective? Once in pieces. I, I decided if I was ever going to watch this, I would do it as it was initially broadcast, do it over three nights. And that's how I watched it. It would have been, needless to say, it's been a very long time. And much like you, I had no inklings to go back and watch this. Um, my, my, my memories were, you know, because Rebecca DeMorzane is in it, I call this miniseries The Hand That Rocks the Remote because I spent the entire four and a half hours shaking my hand fighting the urge to change the channel. I was like Bruce Campbell in Evil Dead 2 about to chop off, <laughs> about to chop off my own fucking hand. I don't say that just because of who's, who makes a cameo in this series, by the way. But <laughs> I did not have fond memories of this. And of, of all the stuff you have ever put on my plate, this is the one I think I have dreaded, like the actual hotel, I have dreaded the most. 
both because of my displeasure the first time, and this is four and a half hours of my life for a singular <laughs> for a singular fucking piece. This is not multiple movies. This is not a trilogy. This is one holistic, evil, ego-driven, <laughs> demonic piece of quote-unquote television. Before we get into the plot here, let me just mention the director of this, Mr. Mick Garris. We're going to be covering Mick Garris a lot in this retrospective. He, he shows up quite a bit. And, you know, I don't want to say I have a relationship with this guy, but I have had online conversations with him. And there were times when I was, when this show was an interview show, when I was trying to get him on. And, you know, he was always traveling. He's always doing stuff. And he'd say, well, Garrett, it's not, nothing's available now, but maybe in the future. And I would get that a lot. But he has always been very supportive of this show of what we do the guy he's a great guy he is a very good guy who went under king's wing which i think josh boone is there now by the way and he turned this thing out and you know i kind of feel for this guy because let's face it this is king's vision matt would you agree with that yes but i also don't think you should completely throw mcgarris under the bus because I think there's some things that he does with the camera work that I've, I've seen in all of his other stuff. I'd feel differently if this was the first thing that, that he did together, but he did do the stand before this. And I think even in Sleepwalkers, I'm pretty sure that's before this as well. So, yeah. so he, he has a, a history of Stephen King that gives me a little bit more pause to the idea that this is 100% Stephen King's vision. Screenwriting, absolutely. Like, it's inarguable. In fact, to the point where King is quoted as saying ABC like, did not demand a single edit in my teleplay, yeah. that goes to show you just how much power this this guy had over this production. Wow. He did to ABC like what J.K. Rowling must have done to her editors. Like, you can't change a single fucking thing. He did do that, as a matter of fact, because ABC, let's not forget, in around the mid-90s was when ABC was bought by, you guessed it, Disney. So were they able to buy the script of a guy who hunts and tries to murder his wife and son. They would give him notes, and King would say, all right, if you change this, I'm going to walk. And they said, okay, just do what you want to do. And yeah, they cut an, they cut an open check to him, and this is completely him. Little, there's one part where they did end up changing, which we'll get to. But other than that, like this is, this is all King, and ABC, even though they were the mouse house, Around this time, they were just becoming a part of the mouse house. They, uh, they didn't change anything except for one scene. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. That does show what kind of power he had. Because the stand was seen by 50 million people. He had power. You know, Stephen King was just as important to ABC as Roseanne was back in the mid-90s. I mean, they wanted this guy to stay on, so they gave him carte blanche. Interesting, huh, Adam? Very. They gave him this much power. Yeah, I mean, kind of crazy. I mean, though... I mean, King in the 90s, I mean, especially that name was just, I mean, it was it was untouchable. I mean, it, mm. it really, really was. And Matt, you bring it up the stand. I mean, what that meant for TV, obviously they were hoping for the same kind of results here. And, and let's not, All right. I forget one other piece I wanted to include, because we're not going to talk about this movie for this series for a decade. Stephen King's <laughs> It, the miniseries. That was, mm-hmm. also, mm. that was also ABC. I had to look that up. Yep. yep. And that was seen by 30 million people. So his name with ABC, they were kind of synonymous as far as quality. And I would say, as far as his horror novels go, 
largely influenced by the Kubrick film, but I would say The Shining is his most like infamous work as far as the horror stuff. So I could see why ABC is like, oh yeah, well we we'll let you do whatever you want. And he did not write the It teleplay. I had to look this up. No, he does not have a credit on that whatsoever. So this was the first one I believe that he did the teleplay for exclusively. I haven't looked at the stand because I don't the stand. Yeah, he wrote the stand as well. Okay, because I've. I think I've only seen, like, one episode. I've never seen it in full. Um, so that'll be fun to do, you know, 20 years down the line. <laughs> <laughs> it went from one decade to two decades. Uh, yeah, and it was actually written by, um, this teleplay was written by our uh, Tommy Lee Wallace. <laughs> Interesting name there. And then the guy who uh, wrote the Carrie screenplay, uh, Leonard Cohen. So, huh. You're right. We'll get We'll get to that when we get to it. But... Uh, before I get into the plot, let me ask you guys. How did you guys watch this? Did you guys watch this in one sitting? Did you guys spread this out? I, I myself, I work nights, and there was one day, one night I had woken up after, you know, I had a night off, and I woke up at like 1 a.m., and I took this DVD, put it in, and I did watch this in one sitting, and I stopped it. And then from 1.30 to 6 a.m., that's how I watched this, and I, t- I had my notes, wasn't going to watch it again, but I had my notes and I was tr- I had to put them together and such before I watched this. And that's exactly why the three of us have been recording the Hobbit series in conjunction with this. That's exactly why I was like, you know what, I'm not going to do the Hobbit before we do this because this is enough of our time. And you guys both have less time as it is, so I, I wasn't going to do that to you. But yeah, I watched this in one sitting. What about you guys? <laughs> nope, kind of like Matt said, I, I wanted this spread out as, as to what the original feel was, would be. So I did it in three different nights, every other night. So did it a night, took a night off, did it a night, took a night off. So I actually had to order this, so I got the discs uh, sent to me. Each disc is the hour and a half, so each disc is one night. Made a really easy, simple way to watch through it. I did not get a chance to go through the commentaries, um, because each disc has got a matching commentary throughout the entire thing. Yep. Um, But nope, one disc a day over three three different days. So I, I did this in one shot for two for two reasons. One, I don't know what sleep is anymore. <laughs> Number two, I gave the Snyder Cut a one-day shot, and that was four hours. So I'm like, you know what? Why not do the same for, for, for Stephen King? Because God knows I have more respect for him than I do for Zack Snyder. <laughs> Even after this? Well, <laughs> don't, don't give me my thoughts too much. I mean, let's not forget. Okay. We, we got we got like 80 recordings we got to do with Stephen King stuff at least. Yeah. Not everything's right, going to be right. great. All right. Well, let's get to it, shall we? So we open up. We have flashbacks and a black screen. And right away, I have a complaint. <laughs> that didn't take long. <laughs> no. The score of this is un. Bearably awful. These children choirs. This is Nicholas Pike, who ended up. He, he did do the Sleepwalkers soundtrack, so he had a little bit of cachet with Mick Garris. So Garris brought him on, and my God, can you get any more self-serious than fucking children choirs? <laughs> Some record for the for the quickest it took for us to complain. And I gotta say, <laughs> my laundry list of shit I hate about this is so long that the score I don't even think is on this notebook. <laughs> oh, Mr. Garris, I, I apologize. <laughs> You're going to take a beating in this podcast. Adam, how about you, sir? What, what were you feeling in the opening moments of this? 
initially I was struck just by, you know, I was, I was wondering what the changes were going to be because you know there's going to be changes to it. I, I know the history behind it. So going back in and settling out. To me, it feels like a TV movie or TV miniseries score. So in that kind of route, I was perfectly acceptable with it. I didn't love it, but it didn't bother me in the slightest. So we get Pat Hangel from Batman fame. He's getting a tour, and my God, here we are, set up. We get the generator. We get the rat. Exposition City. Chekhov's right boiler. Away. Yeah, Chekhov's boiler. Absolutely. <laughs> my first note is Chekhov's boiler. <laughs> yep, yep. Directly from the book. It's a lot. And of all the things we're going to say about this movie, I think the most common word that's going to come up outside of the word fuck or, or other variations of the word fuck is, is literalism. This is such a clumsy expository sequence because not only does it tele, telecast or, or, Foretell, whatever the fuck. I, I don't know what words are anymore, thanks to this. Um, it tells you exactly how the story's going to end. Because he shows him the boiler, he's like, oh, by the way, it's going to explode if there's too much pressure. Pat Hingle might as well wink at the camera and say, uh-huh. wait, we'll come back to this in four hours. And then it tells you also, like, all the exposition about the hotel itself. Like, it's so... I have not read the book in a considerable amount of time, but I would not be surprised if this is, like page for page you translation with the dialogue because I don't remember how the book opens but but yeah th- this is n- this is not setting me off in, the, in a good way and let's not forget Pat Hingle has been in Stephen King properties before because uh, he was in Maximum Overdrive oh that's right he was in Maximum Overdrive God, I completely forgot about that what I took here is that there's you know we we discussed last time I discussed last time that there were some some things that seem to be left either either purposely off or up to the viewer or Kubrick didn't give a shit, whichever way you wanted to put it. And it seems like right off the bat, we're given explanations to some of that right away. This is why this happened. This is what happened here. My second note, hey, there, there's why there's a woman in the bathtub. Because <laughs> yeah. at the end of the last one, I'm oh. like, hey, there's this famous scene. The scene that fucking they take for Ready Player One. And Kubrick gave no mm-hmm. explanation as to what the fuck that was about. You know what? At least I know why now. And I kind of appreciated that. I don't know that it needed to come three minutes into this miniseries, but it's right up front. <laughs> um, I do kind of like, though, that Ullman is kind of a proper dick role here. I appreciate that he's not just a happy-go-lucky guy, that he's an asshole, he doesn't want Jack, and he gives his reasons why. Absolutely, yeah. That, and, that again, straight from the book. I think this as King saying everything that was – all the biographical moments that were taken out by Kubrick – because I mentioned last time that I thought that the Jack is really supposed to be king so much. He's going to put everything back in here that feels personal to him and his demons with alcohol and drugs. Yeah, it's it's so weird because I think that's the biggest reason why he had such a visceral disdain for the Kubrick film is the the autobiographical components being removed. If you notice... There's a lot of other Stephen King films that involve A, alcoholics, and B, writers that King may have take, taken umbrage with, but not to the extent he did here. Stanley Kubrick must have just known how to push his buttons, but since you brought up Allman, again, it's so tough because the Kubrick film, the, the shadow is inescapable, but at the same time, 
it's also very literal because, like, you mean to tell me that I'm going to trust this with a guy who, you know, hasn't had a drink in X and got fired from X and Y and Z? I'm going to trust him with this hotel? That yeah. set up, aside from the fact that Elliot Gould is channeling early George Clooney and can't keep his fucking head straight, um, yeah. that, thing, that thing's bobbing around like crazy. Just, it, it's so, God, it's so fucking literal. And it's not, it's not hooking me. And for something that's four and a half hours, you got to give me a hook, whether it's whether it's a good scare or some compelling dialogue between the characters or, or the really selling the heart of the family at the beginning and Jack wanting to self-improve. None of that's here. And it makes it all the harder for me to sit through this. All right. Speaking of Jack, let's get to that. It's in this expository scene that we meet him, played by Steven Weber. Now, initially... Matt, Adam, it's funny you mentioned Wayne. Mm-hmm. They wanted Tim Daly for this role. Ooh, wow. And Tim Daly was kind of busy at that time. He said no, but how about you see my buddy Steven Weber? But even before that, they wanted, since The Stand was such a hit, they wanted Gary Sinise. Mm-hmm. God. And he passed on it. So we get Steven Weber. Now, I, like Adam, was a huge Steven Weber fan. I was a huge Wings fan. If you're going for... A guy who goes from trying to self-improve to being evil by the end of this. I don't know if this was the correct choice. A little bit of miscasting. I think that the only way they could have done better was probably those other choices. I think Sinise would have been amazing. I think he's, you know, horrendously overlooked for this kind of role. I don't know what Tim Daly was too busy doing um, unless he couldn't get out of the voiceover booth recording Superman the Animated Series. Because other than that in Wings, I don't know what else he's done. Um, but I think Tim Daly would have been amazing. I think Weber is everything that Jack Nicholson wasn't, meaning more than one character, and actually having a side that's not just, I'm crazy from the time the opening credits till the ending credits start. All right, step in, boys. <laughs> so here's the thing. If you're going to have portray a tragic downfall of a of a good guy going – down a dark road that perhaps he's done before. You need a good baseline to start with. You got to make me like this guy at the beginning. And I never get the sense that he openly wants to change because there's that scene with him and his wife in the bed where he's like, something's gotta, something's gotta stop. But it's not convincing. It feels so obligatory. Like, okay, honey, I'll do it if it'll, if it'll get you to come with me. Like, I won't drink. That notwithstanding, I think Stephen Weber is fucking abysmal. This is Sofia Coppola in Godfather Three bad. As, as far as miscasting for me, just derailing an mm. entire production. And this is even more egregious because this is your lead role. This is your main character. You're right that he, he's everything that Jack Nicholson is not. If by that you mean charismatic, good to watch on screen, and scary. Stephen Weber is none of those. I'm, I, I'm trying to, to come up with an actor who I find very similar. And I'm going to say Gary Sinise would have been perfect for, for this, and I will tell you why. I hate Forrest Gump with a passion. There's stuff in that movie where he changes like a light switch. Uh, and there's also a gradual, like the, the, the scene where he pulls Tom Hanks off the bed and he's like, he's crying. He's like, he should have let me die. I could see that being pulled into this version of Jack Torrance in a way that Steven Weber does not pull that off at all. And for a movie that, or, or a TV series, whatever the fuck you want to call this, abomination, um, travesty, a lot of words I could throw out there. That really wanted to be a tragic piece 
it's amazing how much of this is a contradiction of everything King set out to make. Uh, oh my God! I think, I think there's a lot of there's yeah. a, like this is one of the most hypocritical productions I have ever seen as far as being the antithesis of what you set out to make. Oh yeah, and I have notes about that as we go. It, it, it's unbelievable to me. He set out to do something that wasn't Kubrick's movie. Well, you did that, but you also completely contradicted yourself. Yeah, I have notes about that as we as we move on here. Yeah, um, and he sets him up like it's also. So the hypocrisy begins for me. I think Stephen King kind of cheats here in the opening. You're right, he doesn't set him up as a villain. But he's foreshadowed as a villain. It's almost like it's foreordained as far as what you're going to get. There's no mystery to his, we know what's going to happen. Part of that is the, the, the quote-unquote flashbacks you want to get, where it's some of the worst drunk acting I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah, I, I, we got four and a half hours to talk. I can vent later on. <laughs> we hear every hotel has its rats, just like every hotel has its scandals. And then this is still Pat Hingle, by the way. He says that Omen's great at hushing people up, and we are hearing about the woman who kills herself in the bathtub, whom we are going to be seeing later, which Adam called out. Uh, one thing I noticed right away, boys, and, and I'm not going to fault Garris or anyone in the production, but TV production values in the late 90s <laughs> were just horrendous. Like... There is nothing to move your eyes to. I, I think Garris does he, does... he does a couple camera tricks, which we'll talk about, but god damn, is it just me, or was this just kind of garish? <laughs> garish, uh -huh. Garris. This was garish to look at. Yeah. A little bit ago, I sent you all a trailer to the Disney movie Tower of Terror. Um, <laughs> yeah. Steve Gutenberg would have been a better Jack Torrance. Steve, Steve <laughs> Gutenberg and... Um, Kristen uh, Dunst. Ken. Yep, Kristen Dunst. Now... I watch that movie every year before we take a trip to Disneyland or Disney World because I have a soft spot in my heart for that movie. However, it was a wonderful World of Disney Sunday night movie to test a movie based on a ride. It's what they did to prove that Pirates of the Caribbean would work, basically. And the look and the feel and the shot, like the TV movie aspect, I got so much in this. just reminded me of that so, so much. I mean, it's, it's a different venue. You know, not only the hotel, but it's a different venue when you're shooting for TV. And it, it shows. It shows throughout. More so back then. Yeah, there's a... More so back then, though. I think nowadays Oh yeah, the playing field is more even. The, the one, mm -hmm. I guess, technical issue that really bothered me throughout a lot of this movie was the lighting. It, it's inconsistent mm -hmm. as fuck. Uh, I get that because you're dealing with so many interiors and the patterns on the walls don't help the lighting. Like, yeah. like, this building is ugly as shit. Like, who would want to stay here? Who would willingly want to be here? At least... And what's crazy is this is the actual this, hotel. This is the actual and hotel. This, and this is what King wanted. I mean, you talk about his hubris and that, and he's like, fuck it. We're staying at the hotel that actually, you know, was the impetus for all of this. And for good yeah. or for bad, and there's probably going to be a lot of bad. I mean, he, he fucking wanted to shoot it where this all came from. And isn't it amazing that Kubrick came up with something from scratch and built those sets, and that looks like the actual hotel, and this looks like a fucking set. Yeah, it is crazy because it does look and feel like a set, but it is a fucking mm -hmm. hotel. Yeah, unbelievable. So Jack is told there are no ghosts, and they just move on. And then we get a look at the Overlook Hotel, and as Adam just mentioned, this was the inspiration for the book that King wrote. Look, as I mentioned last week, I have... 
I didn't stay here, but I stopped over here and had a drink at the bar and everything just to say that I did. But yeah, you're absolutely right, Adam. Staying here, who would want to, you know, (laughs) given the way they shoot it here? Especially since like in the first one, like that first hotel was just so ominous. I understand they they shot both externally and internally, but everything here, like I said, it just looks like a fucking cheap set. More info dumps from Elliot Gould this time, who obviously had a weekend to kill because even if he's highly billed for all three nights, he's barely in this fucking thing. More talk this time about Grady, the, the last caretaker, and that he was a drunk, much like Jack is. And this is when we get the antagonistic relationship between these two that we hadn't seen before. Jack tries convincing him he's not a drunk anymore, and, and he tells the story of George Hatfield, who he caught slashing his tires. Seriously, more stuff that Kubrick was right to cut. This adds absolutely nothing. Everything that needs to be conveyed about his demons, you get in the stuff with his family, the, the domestic struggles. Mm-hmm. Adding the, or I should say reinserting the, the prep school job loss is just, it's redundant as fuck. Yeah, it's, I mean, you can either have it in exposition, you can have it in a throwaway line, or you can have it shown. You don't need all three. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, yeah. part of that is to fill this time, but you, you tell us and you show us? No, fucking pick one or the other. So, Adam, the staunch defender of this back in 1997, at this point, God, we're about half hour in, but are you still in the groove of it, or how are you feeling right, right at the beginning here? Yep, I am quite a bit. Um in fact, I got a note. We got two more things before we hit the 30-minute mark because I took a little, uh, <laughs> little timer oh, wow. notes as I was going along here. But, yeah, absolutely. In fact, once we meet the rest of the family, which we're about to, I'm in quite a bit. And, in fact, I like this family more than I liked the family we got last week. Oh, wow. Let's get to that. So Jack says he's off the bottle, and he will be talking to a sponsor on the phone. And there's also a play that he's writing. And, of course, the play he's writing is on the side. And Matt, you know, last week we didn't know what he was writing, and I think that kind of added a little bit of an om- ominous presence. Here we we know exactly what he's writing. Does that add anything for you? No, because all the attempts at mystery in this miniseries is either a bunch of people in really bad Halloween costumes, <laughs> or or laying out, or or, be, or laying out the plot exactly through exposition. I guess my biggest thing, like, if, if you had asked me, like, what's the biggest problem with this for me, and holy fuck, is there a lot, it's that the Kubrick film, you can call it cold, you can certainly call it clinical, but it leaves room for the, the unexplained. To me, that's a thousand times scarier than all these detailed explanations. There's so much foreshadowing and so much baiting and switching that it renders all the jump scares entirely moot as well, and it makes everything just feel plotting. The fact that there's no mystery to this hotel, I guess the only mystery is, really, you guys couldn't afford better video effects? Um, <laughs> yeah, and holy shit, um, when we get to the family, you want to talk about failing to embrace mystery, Jesus Christ. All right, so let's get to that. So this is when we meet this movie's Wendy and Danny. Now... I had a major crush on Rebecca Domarnay, going back to The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, and even Risky Business. She is the strong Wendy that King wanted. This was his choice. Shelley Duvall, I didn't have much to say about her performance, but it was memorable. Domarnay's Wendy is a little boring to me. 
my fascination or um, titillation for Rebecca De Mornay goes back, you know, to my youth. I like her a lot in this, actually. I She's not Shelley Duvall. It is a different performance, but it's a different character the way that it's written. This character, I think she's absolutely does a very good job with. It's hard to get away from a hand that rocks the cradle because it's actually pretty fucking similar to some of the looks and even line deliveries directly she gives, but I actually like her quite a bit in this. Okay. Mr. King, you were not a very... If you were listening to this, please call me. And uh, by the way, if you're doing a remake of Maximum Overdrive, please let me be in it. Uh, (laughs) He said that Wendy Torrance, specifically the Shelley Duvall depiction, was one of the most misogynistic characters ever put on film. I don't think he improves on it very much in this movie because she, she's a little bit stronger before he goes crazy, but she's just as scared. And I also don't think she's as convincing as Shelley Duvall was at being absolutely terrified of, oh, my God, this guy's lost his shit. And she's not helped by the fact that she spends so much of the movie just giving him speeches. And not just him. She will tell the audience exactly what's going on as well. I think that's just as misogynistic because she's barely a fucking character. Effectively, it's a really good performance because Rebecca DeMornay is always great, and I know her from the Disney's Three Musketeers that I watched incessantly as a kid. Uh, By the way, I think she set a record in that movie. She's the first person to commit suicide in a live-action Disney movie. Mm. Wow. And speaking of suicide, that's what I wanted to do watching most of Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think this is really an improvement. Performance-wise, they're kind of on par. I don't think she's... I can't call it miscast. I just... I don't get a lot from, from Wendy in this at all. Yeah, Garrett, if you want to go ahead, break the tie, by all means. King said about Shelley Duvall's portrayal, at one point he said that to him it was a screaming dish rag, is what he called it. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. Talk about misogynistic. Yeah, you're not kidding. I am... Um, more with Matt on this. As big of a fan as I am of Rebecca DuMornay, I just feel there's just nothing memorable about this character. I don't feel for her plight. First of all, Steven Weber, this chick is way out of your league, number one. Number two, <laughs> I don't believe the chemistry between these two. And when she does go off on him later, it's almost just because King's like, I need to write this because I need to show that this character is much better than the Shelley Duvall character from last time. Everything is in response. And he got the actress he wanted. And by the way, Rebecca DeMornay, top billing in this. I am not with her at all in this. I just I don't feel for her plight. I don't feel for where she is. Now, say what you want about Shelley Duvall, and I did say everything I did last week. There were things about that characterization and that character that when she is screaming and Jack is coming after her on those stairs, I am scared to death for her. I am never scared for Wendy, nor do I feel like she is anything other than a plot device. She just, she just doesn't come off as memorable to me. But let's get to the kid. Last week, Danny, extremely memorable. He moves his finger and talks like Tony. My God, that is creepy as fuck. Mm-hmm. This Cortland Mead, I'd never heard of him before or since. Chalk another one up to Kubrick. This casting and this kid are terrible. He is terrible in this movie. I understand he's a high-powered dude now, but dude, this was not good. 
that this should have they should have gone through more casting. Hell, Hedy Joel Osment was two years away from the Sixth Sense. Get him for this, for God's sake! Like this is just terrible. Jesus Christ, this kid's unbearable. Oh God, and and I hate saying that about kids, but the the bar has been raised as far as kid actors. And I, the only other thing I've seen this kid in was fucking Hellraiser Four. Oh my God, you're right. And let me say for the record, if you're going to cast this kid, let him grow into his teeth first before you start oh, yes. cameras. Because it's almost like he can't, his teeth are like, you are not going to have a career over my dead body. Superficial stuff notwithstanding, I, I don't think this kid is very convincing at all. Like the, the way that Danny Lloyd like spoke to his finger with that like croaking voice mm-hmm. and laying the idea like, okay, is Tony like this other interdimensional being? His subconscious? If you notice, Kubrick never answers that. So in this version, oh. Holy fuck, I forgot about this completely. I'm going to save that for later. You That's going to be a conversation in and of itself, but I, I don't find this kid convincing at all. Whether at being scared or even as simply as just having a casual... He feels like... um, It's almost... It reminded me a lot of, speaking of Shyamalan, the way he directed the kids in The Last Airbender, where they're, they're, like, they're mm. not even looking straight into the camera. If you notice... He's always looking off to the side. It's like he's looking at cue cards, or mm-hmm. he, he it seems like he's in a completely different world. And I got the sense that he was trying to portray Danny as like borderline autistic. Adam, you're with Weber. You're with DeMarnay. Are you with Cortland Mead? Fuck this kid. <laughs> and one, I'm glad. He almost made me spit out my tea, <laughs> goddammit. I'm, I'm, I'm glad Matt is a overly tired new father can attack me first. I understand his mouth has got an odd shape to it, and I don't want to pick on a kid, but it's fucking distracting. And over the course of four and a half hours, I mean, it fucking... Does this kid grow up to be Ty Sheridan, who can't fucking close his mouth as Cyclops in the fucking first-class X-Men movies? I mean, <laughs> shit. It, it... He's... Yeah, no. This was a big downgrade. Um, and then Tony, mother fuck. I mean, I, all right, we're getting to him. We're getting Christ. to him. <laughs> all right, yeah, three for three on this kid. I, I and, and I so wish. Like, this is such an important part of this story. You know, when I was a kid, like I, I saw The Shining relatively young, the, the the first one, and that kid was my go-to character because he was around my age. I can't see anyone see, looking at this kid and saying, "Yeah, he's speaking for me." I just can't see it because he just he doesn't he doesn't pull you in. He, he he's just he's and you're right. You guys are absolutely right. He's distracting. As superficial as that is, he's a distracting fucking presence on the screen. I kind of wish that this got made five years prior, and they could have just snagged Jonathan Brandis from the. Yeah, I was thinking that too. <laughs> Especially when we meet Tony. I mean, my God, like <laughs> that's yeah. What, and just would have grown into. But you're right. That's a great call. Danny tells Wendy that Jack did indeed get the job. And then we get more flashbacks, this time to Wendy remembering when Jack broke Danny's arm. Uh, Wendy lays down the law to Jack, saying she won't be doing this anymore. She won't apologize for Jack's behavior. And she also says that if anything like this happens again, she's packing her bags and taking Danny with her. All right. (laughs) We've been circling this drain. This is also when we meet Tony. And... Between Cortland Mead's horrible eye acting and Tony moving his hands over signs and changing them into flashbacks, 
this you know king wanted if king wanted to go for dread go for horror go for the scariest he he flat out said in interviews leading up to this he wanted to make the scariest thing ever put to television this is fucking stupid this is awful you're gonna people are laughing at you dude yeah. okay when, when, when tony moves his hands all i can think of was fucking madonna's music video for vote <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it was like watching that, and it was like watching um, – I don't know the guy's name, but if you've ever seen the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie, whenever Dr. Doom monologues, he moves his hands like he's voguing. Oh, yeah. It, it's it's so distracting, and I, and I get it. If this is in the book, I'm not rereading this shit because this is fucking dumb on so many levels. But again, it goes to my, my underlying thesis of King has got to overplay his hands – and foreshadow the fuck out of this, too. Because the only way, like, the the resolution, the big twist, is the only way this makes sense as far as him being in this, like, universe and not an extension of the hotel. Um, and I'm sorry, Mick Garris, I don't find quick cuts to bloody croquet mallets and signs switching and switching their font to be scary. I think that's... I, I don't think it's scary at all. I could stand in traffic and be more horrified in what I see out there than all the stuff that we see with Danny and uh, Tony. But do you find the CGI hose that comes to life scary? Because we also get some foreshadowing of that. And, and this reminded me of the Langoliers, those flying... Uh, oh, my God, that's, yes. It's literally the same goddamn effect. Uh, eh, oh, Wow. You know, I had some issues last time because they didn't explain Tony, didn't know what it was, who he was. I'd like to go back. You got your wish. I'd like to go back to last <laughs> week, please, sir. Um, I mean, fucking the outfit, the hair, the glasses even. Like, who fucking dressed yeah. Tony? I mean, shit. I mean, he looks like the kind of kid that Stephen King bullies beat up. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like Jonathan Taylor Thomas after he left Home Improvement. I mean, just... Oh, my God. Uh, he was better looking than this kid, though. <laughs> but, yeah, no. The less, the, the less said about Tony, the better. So Jack pulls up in a red Volkswagen bug with Danny seeing the croquet mallet full of blood next to him. The flash that Matt likes so much. This next bit. It is proof that King was just a different writer in 1977 than he was in 1997. Because this is when we hear... Kissing, kissing, that's what I've been missing. Kissy, kissy, that's what I've been missing. This isn't in the book. And King oh, shit, it's not in the book? No, it, this is not oh, in the book. Oh, we found something that's not in the text. No. I thought, there had, King, I thought there had to be an excuse for this fucking nope. horrible line. King's cheesy sensibilities in the 90s, they do not help him this entire film. You know, King's Shining, or Kubrick's Shining may have been made by a guy who hated people, but at least the feeling of dread was omnipresent and worked for that film. Here, I'll be honest, nothing's working. And this whole phrase and this, this thing, like this is just cheesy as fuck. It's yeah. like he, he forgot what time period this is supposed to be set because this feels like um, the way he wrote the 50s and it, where everything's, oh. everything's almost like a leave it to beaver level of sincerity. Oh. I, I swear to God. I don't know if this was before or after the car accident, but maybe he got confused about what decade this was. <laughs> you know, what the, th this is George Lucas' dialogue without a fucking editor. Yeah, and this kid is Jake Lloyd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So Jack goes over to the bar to see what he's been missing, apparently, and we cut to the car making its way to the hotel down this helicopter shot windy road. You know, you want to make people forget about Kubrick Shining, but you still include a helicopter shot of them going down this windy road? And you got to get up. Not a good idea, Garris. So Jack tells a driver to read between the lines, pal, as he holds up his three fingers and then tells Danny about the Donner party or the Donner dinner. More foreshadowing. As Jack and Wendy, they're admiring the scenery. Here's Tony again warning Danny not to go in there. And King plays with apparitions with this a lot. And we'll see a similar character in Pet Cemetery, just warning them about things that are to come. But the feeling of dread that he's going for with this character is just not working. I think it's just because of the characterization. Like if you had Danny do this with his finger like last week, it might have worked. But this... It's not setting up anything except cheesiness. You could have just had him talk to himself. And I think the fact yes. that the mom is so... That she's aware that this kid has a psychic connection. It doesn't get this kid the psychiatric help he so clearly needs. It makes me like her even less. Yep. Like, I don't like how comfortable everyone is with the, with the psychic component. Because if that was the case, then all Wendy has to do is say, Hey, Tony, did Jack hit Danny? Yeah. Absolutely. And that was a big change that Kubrick made last week. In Kubrick's film, nobody really knows for sure about Danny's abilities. Here, everybody just kind of embraces it. Oh, yeah, he's got this little yeah. thing. We don't, we don't really... be a fucking X-Man. Yeah, great point. Absolutely. We see the hedge animals for the first time. <laughs> More on these later. <laughs> Can we mention we're only two years away from the Matrix? <laughs> Six years removed from Terminator 2. Yep. More on these in a little bit, guys. And then Garris uses a Texas chainsaw tracking shot with Jack leading up, walking up to the hotel. And then Danny just kind of cringes at the hedge animals. And he's not the only one who will be doing so by the end of this. <laughs> They're going through the hotel, and then we meet a pimp. Oh, I'm sorry. This is Halloran. Wow. What a... Wow. You know, it's, it's Deadshot from Suicide Squad. <sighs> Yet another fumble. And as much as I respect Melvin Van Peebles and what he did for 70s cinema and black exploitation, he adds absolutely nothing as well. He has also got zero chemistry with Mead. You know, it took it took Kubrick about 127 shots or 150, whatever how many, how many shots it was, to get Danny and Halloran and that one just warm scene that we mentioned. The one warm scene in that entire film. Here they just seem to be going through the motions when every time Halloran's talking to Danny. It's just going through. Get, we got to get this through. We got to get this through because this is the character from last time and and from the book. Ah, Melvin Van Peebles, yet another part of this puzzle that doesn't work for me. Get that he wanted to do something different, but th this he might as well have just gotten fucking Rudy Ray Moore. To, to oh jeez. Like, hey baby, want to help me with my bags, man? Like it's, <laughs> it's so on the nose. Everything from his wardrobe to the. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't speak in a bonics, which I guess is a good thing. But I don't get any connection between these two. Like he, he kind of, like th this has like borderline like Stranger Danger component mm -hmm. oh, yes. to it. Not uh, wise old magical mystical Negro like in uh, Scatman Crothers. I, I, I almost called him Dick Halloran. I'm like, I know that's the character, not the actor. But yet again, another, another huge miscast. Like, I'm trying to think, like, 90s, the, the joke is Morgan Freeman. 
because Lord knows he plays that magical, mystical character in a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. We'd also have to get someone a little bit older. And you like 70s black exploitation, don't you? You've, you've been on record on the yeah, show. Yeah, that's why I wanted Rudy Ray Moore. Uh, you know, I was yeah. like, somebody should have called Yafet Kodo. I just fucking was about to say that, yep. That's a great call, actually. So, um, Captain Exposition, like, I wasn't expecting so much of him here. Might as well have a fucking name tag that says, you know, Exposition, ask me how. Because that's, like, that's all he's here for. Um, yep. It, it's tough, because, yeah, like you, like, I like Van Peoples, but, man, he's deserved. And he's, you got four and a half hours, and you made him less of a character, even though he's in it a little longer. Maybe he's in it a little longer. I guess maybe a little bit more of a dialogue with Danny, but yeah, no, it just no, he doesn't work, and it's a shame. I think just by the law of averages, he's in it longer because the thing is four and a half fucking hours. <laughs> you have to go by the percentages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Danny scares Halloran with how much of the shine he has as his power whips him around, and he tells Halloran about the time he used it at a basketball game. Then Halloran just calls him an all-out atomic bomb. Okay. Oh boy. With. with- they never do anything with, with this idea of him being like, he might as well have said like his mini chlorine count was off the charts. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm sorry to make so many Star Wars comparisons, but this was like, a lot of this was like watching the prequels. But for all the talk about him being so powerful, you'd think it, it, it'd have more, they'd mention it more, or it would be explaining all the more reason why the hotel would want him so badly to use, but that's not the angle they go for. Like, I think that would have been something that King really could have reinforced the idea that the hotel's after him because he's so strong and they need to get that off the table. After this, it's so matter of fact, like, yeah, he, he might as well be Jean Grey, but we're not going to, we're not going to do anything with it. We're not really going to, like with the way they talk about it, he might as well be carrying, moving yeah. shit around with his mind, closing doors, pushing his, could push his father down a flight of stairs there's so much more stuff they could be doing, and it doesn't it doesn't have any bearing on the overall plot. All this all, all this minutia bullshit about how powerful he is. Yeah, this is. I mean, it's another thing of you know you want an explanation, but the fucking explanation better be worthwhile. I mean, you want to talk about the prequels? That's you know we've talked about it a lot, but do you really want to see Darth Vader as a kid? No, because it's better in your mind, and some things. All the shining that was left unexplained before, King doesn't do a good job of explaining it. You know, they they try to give they give lip service to it all, and even you know a little more than that, as Matt said, in this I guess now side addition to your X Men retrospective. Um, you know, he's Jean Grey. We brought up Cyclops, but it's just it's unfulfilling when they try to explain the shining when he's trying to demonstrate the shine because it's still I don't know. It's haphazard. And this was his opportunity to say, this is what it is. This is what it fucking does. Instead of giving no answers, it gives every answer. It does everything. And it does whatever it needs to at the moment. Yeah, they really should have said, and, like, why is it so important? Why yeah, do, we still don't I, get that. Yes. Uh, yeah, why do only a select few seemingly have this ability? Why Why is it such a bad thing that you have it? Because you why can go the, like, it's a like the black spot in like pirate mythos like it's not something that you should have it, why does you know, the hotel want it other than just to hide what happened there what do the ghosts want with it why do they want him yeah Stephen King really should have called Chris Claremont to be the co-writer on the script oh my god I just watched a documentary on him today 
Not now, Adam, this was a big thing with you last week where you were you were wondering exactly what exactly is to shine. What exactly is to shine? We yep. don't get told that in this movie, and it hurts the movie. So here you're, you're getting told it, and you're still not liking it. <laughs> All right. What's <laughs> the motherfucker? You, you, you know what? I wanted to date the prom queen, and she was a fucking bitch. <laughs> you know <laughs> She it's, was a bitch. It's God. A, you know, it's the way it worked out. It's... I think the possibilities, I think a different actor and a different script, and I think fleshing out the shine could have been fucking special. Instead, it's not. Change the actor, change the writer, change the director. <laughs> Other than that, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy gets shown the freezer, more setup, and a tour of the kitchen. We get talk that you just can't count on emergency vehicles to make it out there if they, if they need them. Jesus. And if they don't watch out, they'll end up like the Donner Party. This is also when we get the first sign of a ghost, as the door just kind of closes by itself behind them. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> I swear to God, this is what caused all these paranormal activity fucking movies. A door closing, <laughs> a kitchen door slamming, a mirror shutting is not fucking scary. And if it scares you, you need to watch some better fucking horror movies. <laughs> this is so bad. This is the worst example of trying to build tension because of the script. It doesn't fucking exist. Halloran defines the shine for Adam as he says that it's the ability to see pot the possible future. He also warns of a room that Danny names 217. And Halloran makes Danny promise that he won't go in there, though he wouldn't expand on that. We get more talk about how the ghost won't hurt him if he just looks away and counts to 10. Again, all of this is straight from the novel. Like, King's just taking his prose and making it literal. Uh, we get a Nut and Honey reference, by the way. <laughs> Remember that, kids? And they, we get a couple of them in this. And they draw a mustache on the picture of Ullman, as their safety here is compared to that of the Titanic. I'd rather be watching Titanic. God, if swap out Steven Weber for Billy Zane, and this movie becomes ten times better. He was a little busy around this time. We get a push-pull shot of as Danny is having flashbacks to what happened at the Overlook. They walk by 217 as Garrus just zooms in on it and a monster roars in the background. More setup, kids. They finally get shown to their apartment and Jack is doing shingle work on the roof when he runs into some bees that attack. So what's he do? Why give them to his son as a present, of course. He killed them first. He's not a dick. He's not Jack Nicholson, Jack. He took it as a matter of good faith. I'm not going to check to see if they're dead. I'm just going to pray to God that they're dead, and if not, we'll sue the hotel. Yeah. Remind me of why this guy, why we're supposed to like him? Yeah. See, but this, see, I, I took it completely, did, it, they were completely dead, and I, the house brought him back to life. You know, that worked oh, you, the movie so, actually explained it, because they, they're, they're so literal than everything else, but yet they, they, they take all these shortcuts with the fucking bees and... Mm-hmm. The beehive and the, the old woman in the bathtub. It's like, we'll make all these narrative cheats, but you're going to sit your ass down and listen to every little detail about these people's lives. I, I have expected her to talk about her fucking menstrual cycle with the amount of expository dialogue that she has in this goddamn movie. That's in the commentary. <laughs> yeah, that, that's how I took this, is that the can actually worked. It was completely dead, and once he took them inside the house, the house resurrected these wasps back that stung Danny that the house was using them to start attacking him. See, in the book, he just goes on about how his his dad gave him one when he was a kid, so he just kind of wanted to do the same thing for his. But 
goddamn, a, a little bit of like showing them being resurrected or something. Like this is just this just comes out of nowhere. And King again includes this, and again Kubrick, one point for Kubrick because he omitted this, and it was a wise choice because this adds again absolutely nothing to the story. I don't think. I think King included it because it was in his book. Or better yet, this is the the best solution I can think of. How about you show him actively trying to be a good father? There you go. Because God forbid we have, a, we have a tragic story where we actually feel some emotional sympathy for the father. Everything that King, again, lambasted about the, about the Kubrick film. There's no warmth. He hates people. Dude, you're not making us like him any better. Oh, see, now I, get a, I, I think he likes his wife and son a hell of a lot more than I got last time. Uh, well, that, that might be Yeah, true. well, it's also a, Kubrick had an entirely different interpretation. Absolutely. Yeah. Jack then asks Wendy if she's happy, to which she responds she is as happy as she's been since Danny was born. We are hearing the snow is going to come, and how the only thing kids really care about is who would win in a fight between Spider-Man or Batman. More comic book references. Well, well, (laughs) well, first of all, to answer the question, the the big question is how much prep time does Batman get? (laughs) Logan, it's Batman. That's the answer. Yeah, I, I, I think you should... The better question would have been if you watched Batman, Spider, uh, Batman, Spider-Man in a room and had them watch this, who would kill who first? <laughs> would Batman break his no-kill rule to say, hey, put me out of my misery. I don't want to watch this anymore. Does Alfred go crazy trapped inside our uh, man, uh, Wayne Manor? Fuck. <laughs> Wendy displays more concern for the beehive that's in Danny's room. And then we get just more non-chemistry-driven kisses between Jack and Wendy. Jack is typing on his typewriter as Danny comes in to say goodnight to him and ask how his play is going. And this is when Tony once again appears and Danny closes the door. Jack breaks the door down and they come in to see that Danny's on the floor having flashes and saying that Tony was there, to which Jack just kind of shakes him and accidentally bashes his head into the toilet. Matt, are you feeling anything for this? Other than anger? No. <laughs> um, it's so... I also can't sympathize with Danny because he... He shuns away Tony, and then two seconds later, he's like, Tony, come back. I'm sorry. Like, I get that he's a, he's a five-year-old kid, but given the fact that you have no idea what's happening, I would think you would want your, your imaginary, or not really imaginary, based on that fucking train wreck of an ending. Um, <laughs> speaking of the Titanic, good God. Uh, I was waiting for an iceberg to hit this hotel. <laughs> I would think he would not shun his best friend away considering he has no idea what's going on. At this point, I'm like, you know what? Your son's having these kind of seizures. It's time to fucking leave. Mm. Yeah, this is, uh, again, and it's also inconsistent with that, where there's points where they have no sense of urgency. Then there's other points where Jack will see something and just run out of the room. Yeah. More fade-ins to the outside hedge animals as Jack comes in and says he got scared when the door was locked. Funny that we just finished Shyamalan, Matt, because this whole scene of Jack talking about dead people to Danny made me think of how Shyamalan would do this scene a hundred times better two years later in The Sixth Sense. I think I found comparisons to all of Shyamalan's movies. <laughs> largely because I think it takes as much of your soul out watching all of Shyamalan's movies as it does watching this, and I'm pretty sure it's about the same length of time. At least it felt like it. <laughs> So Danny mentions and, and, Denver. And I, want, I want this joke in the review. I was screaming, uh, instead of calling it um, the happening, I was screaming, something fucking happened, please. <laughs> Danny mentions 
Denver croquet and how it's bigger than regular croquet. <laughs> what? We're setting up croquet now? <sighs> oh, boy. We then see a scene straight from a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel as lights are turning on, fireplaces are lighting up, the furnace is heating up, and jukeboxes are being turned on. Um, this, this, uh, Adam, how are you feeling at this point, sir? Other than a few little things, a oh, few big things to Matt, a few big things to you, I'm not having a bad time watching it. I like the family better, and I'm at least getting, even though it's unfulfilling, I feel like they're trying to tell the story as opposed to glancing over it, but I'm not hating what I'm watching. Wow, I'm not even through the first night, and I'm already like, God damn, guys. <laughs> like, let's just get on with it here. Jack and Wendy, they fight about Jack's anger, and Jack once again apologizes. You know, it, it's funny. I, I, know King, I know what King's trying to tell us here. This is a father struggling to keep both his family and his sobriety, but Weber, to me, is just not up to this acting challenge. Not to mention, he's just not given that much to dwell on. This, come off, this comes off as so inconsistent. Matt? Yeah, it, it doesn't, and they hit the same beats every time. It's they will spend ten to twelve minutes in a room arguing with each other, and it ends with the same saying, "You know what? You're right." Yeah, that, that's it. And this is where the the translation process of how passage of time is conveyed in a book versus how it's you have to depict it in a movie or or in a visual medium. In a book, you can convey a lot about how time is passing. You could do flashbacks, flash forwards. You also don't have to be directly literal with saying how much time has passed. Um, you can use that to explain what's happening in the characters' heads. That allows you to build the horror. Doing it here, it's a lot of speechifying, and it reminds me a lot of Shyamalan movies where people don't talk the way normal people should. Now, I understand that Jack is already losing his mind, but not only is the dialogue unnatural, these scenes go on way too long. I felt like this movie was holding me hostage whenever these two were in their marriage counseling sequences. Like, I would have rather watched, I don't know, fucking... If you were going to make this now, get Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. This would have been fucking great, because I watched Marriage Story. I think Adam Driver would be a great Jack Torrance. I, I think the deer standing outside my house right now would be a better... Uh, Jack... Uh, Actually, it's probably the best topiary animal you'll find in this movie, too. So, so yeah, needless to say, I, I hate my own existence watching the movie, watch, watching this at this point. And I am, it was really testing my patience as far as, am I really going to do this one shot? So I, I, had to, I had to take the stick, I had to put it in my mouth, this is not a euphemism, everyone shut the fuck up. <laughs> God damn it. And I, and I just sat there and said, all right, I, I got to get through this. I have a commitment to my partner that I have to. <laughs> I gotta watch that, and let me just say, after Fast and Furious, I think we're even. <laughs> it's just from one four and a half hour series. Adam, Matt's struggling with the uh, marriage counseling here. Are you feeling for these characters? I don't disagree that the scenes go on long. I think it would be hard to say that you know ten to twelve minute scene of two people talking is is not too long. However, in a TV miniseries over three nights, I'm not surprised by it. And being that this is all about three people in a hotel, I'm kind of glad to see the family interact since last time all we got was 
unless she was bringing him a fucking sandwich. The family never interacted once they got to the hotel. But that was the beauty of that movie. It's about the approach because they didn't talk to each other. But when they did talk, there was tension. Here, all they do is fucking talk and nothing gets solved. That, I that think was, that's the big difference that I noticed while watching this one. But that was my problem before, is that you don't have a loving family last time. So I don't give a shit that they don't get along, because Jack's never a fucking nice guy in that movie from the get-go. This one, what's he going to do, apologize to, you know, is Jack Nicholson going to apologize to Shelley Duvall? No, because it wouldn't make sense and we wouldn't believe it. And I wouldn't, you know, I, I hate them when they're together, because he feels like an abusive dick. I don't feel animosity between these two. I feel like they're actually probably a more true-to-life couple, so I don't mind seeing them actually have these moments. I wish they, you know, cut the scenes by a little bit, but I appreciate at least having the scenes in it. Meanwhile, who couldn't see this coming? The bees escape their hive and attack Danny as Wendy shouts that she knew it wasn't safe and more doors close unexpectedly. Jack fights with the bees and challenges one to sting him. And then, then in a weird fucking plot twist, Jack takes pictures of the bee stings with the intention to sue. See, this would work better if it was established that they were desperate for money. Yeah. Like, losing his job put an economic strain, and he was desperate and took this job at the hotel. Instead, it's just more fuel to my fire that this guy is just as much of a dick as Jack Nicholson's was. Yeah, and where, where's Nick Cage when you need him to talk about... <laughs> But here's the weird thing about the scene. So he's blaming himself for screwing up everything, right? But later on, Wendy's like, don't blame yourself. Is she any better than Duvall? As the one person on this podcast who did not like Duvall's performance last week, I have to say no. This character and the way she's written, King, you did no better with this character. She's not a screaming dish rag, but she's... I'm going to laugh every time you say that. <laughs> She's just not good, man. I, I just, I, and I love Rebecca Dumornay, but the, she's given no justice. Yeah, instead, instead of a watery dish rag, this movie has all the comfort of a wet blanket. There you go. Put that on the DVD box. Oh, I already have. I've already said it. When, <laughs> when the Blu-ray re-release from Shout Factory puts this out as a gag, they're gonna, they're gonna steal that. <laughs> Well, what's funny about that is it wasn't even originally supposed to be out on DVD. I think one of the things in the contract was it aired once on ABC, and I think it aired one other time on USA, and that was supposed to be it. So how they were able to release this and just said, fuck it, even Kubrick's dead, let's just put it out anyway, is beyond well, me. Well, thanks to YouTube, we would have gotten it either way. Night one ends, finally, with uh, <laughs> some, uh, some harrowing shots of the outside of the hotel, complete with dark clouds and croquet being played all by itself, because that's scary. I don't know, I've been to some nursing homes. That's some scary shit when you see croquet <laughs> So day two starts with Jack being in AA. Then they have a doctor tell Wendy that Danny is perfectly normal with no signs of epilepsy. And then we also hear about Tony from these characters for the first time, as the doctor suspects there's stress in their marriage and that Tony has been helping him with the stress that goes along with it. And then more about the story of how Jack broke Danny's arm. Which we've already been fucking told. I know. And Matt, you're complaining about the passage of time, but we are getting subtitles here as we cut to November 1st. As uh, Jack is, uh, is working for once, as he's working on the boiler, 
and then he runs into a scrapbook from the hotel itself. This, it should be said, and it comes as no surprise, is all straight from the book. Him going through this scrapbook is a lot of what causes animosity between him and Ullman, and why Ullman, just at the end, is really struggling to keep Jack on as the caretaker of this hotel. I wish I was watching this in November so I could slit my throat like a Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Adam, yep. this is different from last week. Are you glad you're getting these explanations of what's going on? I actually like that there seems to be one. I'm glad that he's not sitting in a room typing because it at least seems that there's different there. Because as I brought up last time, as soon as he sat down and started working on whatever he was working on last time, he was then 100% crazy because he never wrote anything else. This, it seems like the house is fucking with him and showing him something and trapping him in. So I like this difference. I like actually seeing him work on the house since that's what he's fucking there for. <laughs> you know? Yeah. As opposed to last time watching Shelley Duvall do the only stuff in the house. I mean, he is a fucking caretaker, which matters later. I'm the fucking caretaker. So I like that they're at least showing that he's there to do that part. And I do like, you know, that he's going through this history of what the hotel's been going on. But it does feel like a campy TV movie in that aspect. I do like that we're actually seeing him actually do some work. That's a good point in Adam's favor. <laughs> One of the only ones I'm, I'm going to give. Uh, bring, bring down the rest of the croquet mallet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was just fucking... I, I'm running, I'm run, I, I shouldn't say I'm running out of stuff because... I literally have a, a binder full. I might as well have my own Stephen King Bible of shit I have to say about this and publish it later on the Patreon, just reading my thoughts word for word about my experience watching this. And I'm so glad I should say I'm not happy that I watched this by myself mm. because I'm pretty sure that made me go even crazier. If I, If Christian was there watching it with me, I probably could have stopped it and gone up checked on Riker, done some other stuff. But no, I had to endear this all by my lonesome. <laughs> we then move on to November 2nd, as Danny tells the voices in his head to shut up, and Wendy picks him and Jack up, and they head out to make a snowman. So more because family bonding your here. your traumatic experience? We're yes. just going to go outside the snow yeah. and pretend this shit never happened. Did you want to build exactly. a snowman? <laughs> <laughs> we move on to November 19th. As Danny is now playing chess, but he starts hearing even more, vo even more voices, this time from a woman that is not his mother. The woman says that they should play. And so Danny walks outside, walks past a fire hose, and then he goes right up to room 217, but he once again gets stopped by Tony, and Danny tells him to leave him alone. Garris is really building this up here. You know, He knows that we know what's in this room. But he's having Danny look in the peephole. He's playing some wind noises in the background. And he has Danny grab the key. So ignoring Halloran's warnings, Danny heads up to the room, only to have Tony once again appear. And the fire hose jumps off its perch. Should be said, this fire hose, directly from the book, because King himself had a nightmare that his child was attacked by a fire hose. Some things are better left off. That's yeah. something he may want to talk to a fucking shrink about. Yeah, like, and that, I swear to God, Stephen King and Dario Argento must share brain brainwaves. Because sometimes watching Stephen King movies 
it's like he must have written down like Dario Argento with all his dream logic stuff, writing down all of his nightmares from age eight to age eleven, and just directly putting them on the screen. Because no matter what you do in it, a fire hose, it's not, it's not scary. I hate to sound like an asshole, but it's, it's not. But he, he tries so hard to make everyday objects like a fire hose and a croquet mallet and a, a stoplight. Try to make all these everyday objects scary. When in reality, there are, I think there are some things that you could play with. Like the, they're in a giant kitchen. Maybe he gets locked in the freezer and he starts to hyper, go into hypothermia. Or, you know, the burner overheats. Or he steps outside and the door's locked. There's so many other things you could do about this hotel turning on you. Not a fucking fire hose with, you know, Gene Simmons teeth. <laughs> You know, it should be said that I think that's a I think it's a good thing to put your nightmares on paper. I really do. I I, I still do it to this day. And if you can find inspiration in that, that is wonderful. But like a lot of this, some things should be filtered out. And I think this is one thing that should have been filtered out of this, no matter what kind of nightmare he had. Because goddamn, nineteen ninety seven CGI, nineteen ninety seven T V budget CGI Oh, this doesn't come off as scary at all. The the effects, you know what it reminded me a lot of at points with with all the the distorted effects and the dark lighting. It was like watching Event Horizon in certain points. Oh wow. Same year. Yeah, same year. I was trying to think like were there better effects around this time? I, I get T V budgets were a lot more uh stripped back than movies. But if you told me this and 1997's classic Anaconda had the same budget, I would believe you. <laughs> classic Anaconda, he says. Danny's interrupted by Jack, who again gives a nut and honey reference <laughs> as Danny gives him the key that he had. Jack is taking his medicine for a headache. We then cut to Danny telling Wendy that Jack is actually in the cellar looking at a scrapbook and not writing the play anymore. Danny then sees red rum in the corner for the first time, which Wendy says sounds like something a pirate would drink. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I proceed so, with the bottle. I was saying I, I, would, I, I would give up my entire bottle of vodka for one good joke. <laughs> <laughs> it, took us, it took us to the second night to get red rum for the first time. And, yeah, the power is just not here. No, definitely not the same effect of what we got before bringing that out. No. We cut to December 8th. As Jack continues looking through the scrapbook, he's interrupted by Wendy, who tries enticing Jack to bed. Mm-hmm. But he's more intent on staying out in the front room. And Wendy, despite being told by, Jan- by Danny that Jack hasn't been drinking, starts having her doubts as Jack just doesn't seem attracted to her anymore. Uh, she says that the hotel is just not doing them any good and they should leave. Jack convinces her to stay through the winter. And then after this goddamn kissing, kissing line again, it would seem that Wendy now gets her wish as well. And they go up to, I guess, make love. But goddamn, another just way elongated scene. The lovemaking in this movie has all the intimacy of a lifetime movie. Adam, did you like did you like this particular scene? Or where, where are you at here? I'll be her caretaker. Um <laughs> yeah. It your wife to listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> she knows. Um it 
no. I mean, it's, it, it's not a great story. I get what she's trying to do, and I get the reason behind it all. Is it great? No. Does it show the family together some? Yeah. It's moving stuff along, but it's, yeah, the suspense isn't there other than seeing that Jack is starting to go down more of a rabbit hole than a madness hole. Yeah. I thought just to, to try to shock people, while they were in the act, she would turn, it's a hallucination, she turns into the woman from 217. Mm. Something, At least that right? would have been, it's something we've seen a million times, but at least it'd be a scare. Like, mm-hmm. for, for, a, for a movie that was the Kubrick film that's so reliant on atmosphere and just unrelenting dread, I don't think there's a single scare in this four and a half hours that got me. And that's, I almost have to give it an F just for that. King wanted to make the scariest TV movie of all time. I mean, it's scary because I couldn't find the remote to change the channel. (laughs) (laughs) We cut to December 9th as Jack is doing a walkthrough of the outside of the Overlook, and he starts getting urges as he finds the croquet mallet and feels that maybe the hedge animals are moving. Unfortunately, sir, you are right. (laughs) He thinks he (laughs) 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 He thinks he needs a meeting but there are more voices and growls in his head. Now, am I the only one who thinks seeing them in one place that is different than the other can be kind of unnerving, but actually seeing these hedge animals move in their full CGI form, and we'll get that at the end of this thing, but we're starting to see it a little bit here. That's where this plot point falters. These hedge animals and their inclusions, again, another point for Kubrick. That goddamn hedge maze, you felt claustrophobic. That was a scary part of that movie. Was them, that was the only part when I was actually feared Jack Nicholson was when he was stalking Danny through that, and he had pain, but he was still waving that axe trying to kill his family. Because there is nothing scarier to me than your father figure coming after you like this. Nothing. Here, King once again makes his prose literal and puts in these hedge animals, and my God. Oh, fuck. Well, didn't Edward Scissorhands come out? Yeah, Edward Scissorhands was out like six years before. Seven. That's what I thought of every time these fucking things came on. Was Speaking of which, Anthony Michael Hall would have been a good Jack Torrance around this time. And then, oh, yeah. And he did yeah. the death zone. But that's, yeah, he, he would go on to do camp. Yeah, I mean, the scariest thing about this is me looking at the remote and finding out there was another two and a half goddamn hours after this. <laughs> <laughs> because these, if you were so insistent on these the topiary animals being the most instrumental component of your adaptation, you should have at least said, hey, they got to look good. Yes. Um, th- this is, even by 1997, this is as bad as the stop-motion spider at the end of it. Uh, I'm saving it. I wanna, I'm not going to go that far. But I will say that they did initially try stop-motion with this, and then everything just did not look right, so they just went with CGI. And I don't think that helps them at all. I just think, just keep these fucking out. Kubrick was absolutely right. The hedge maze was absolutely brilliant. I've forgiven and uh, justified a lot. I'm not going to fucking justify the way these look, (laughs) the way these move. However, if you want to keep the hedge animals, what you do there. I enjoy Doctor Who a lot. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite villain things, characters that they have, and they are fucking terrifying, are things called the Weeping Angels. And they are the angel-type statues that you see in graveyards and churches and things like that, right? Just they're angels. They're standing there. And they move when you blink, when you turn, when you're not looking at it. They're suddenly closer and closer 
and they slightly move a little bit different, and it's fucking terrifying. You never see them move. You just see them closer to you. It's literally the lines are don't blink because every time you fucking blink, they're just catching up to you. You could do something like that. When these things get moving, it's fucking hokey. And it's like I'm not scared. If this is supposed to be a scary movie and I'm enjoying a lot of it, I am not enjoying it on a I'm scared. It's a horror movie premise. I don't get that anywhere. But no, the hedge maze was claustrophobic. It was fucking beautifully shot, beautifully lit. This, no, 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 no. I don't know how he wrote this that would have even been feeling scary in a fucking book. I No. No. It, it wasn't. And I think of, like, what other stuff can I use to, to say that there's other contemporary stuff that shows, oh, they could have made this work if they applied it. Uh, season one of Buffy started in 97. And while it took a while for that show to kind of find its footing... I think of stuff like um, there's the puppet show episode. Oh yes. Um, well, pu- puppets are scary motherfuckers anyway. As is well, <laughs> yes. another show, but that showed that you could do something really, really out there and still be re- very unsettling. Um, I think you could have done something. You could have, if you applied yourself, got past your own ego, and said, "What can I do to scare people that maybe wasn't in the book, but works in a visual medium." These topiary animals do not, and it's it's one of the biggest examples of King failing to see that what works in a book does not work on a screen. It's like fucking uh, when people complain about the absence of Peeves in the Harry Potter movies. I'm like a, a mischievous like imp ghost just following them around. It serves no purpose in, in the grand storytelling. Like, here, you could have done any number of things to make this work. So you could have where every time they look out the windows, they move, or they're in a different position, or they're inching, close, yeah. inching closer to the house, so that every t- they're trapped in the house, and every time they look outside, they're fucking creeping closer. Shit, that would work. Yeah, implication. Yep. Jack starts hearing the voice of his dad. Of um, all the people I was not expecting to be in this. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, reveal it. Uh, Miguel Ferrar as uh, his father. Yep. I totally blanked that he was in this at all. Um, not yeah. not the only Stephen King thing he'd be in because I believe he was in the Night Flyer right after this. And he was in the Stand. Yep, and the Stand. So he was a regular. He's been a regular on the show because we talked about RoboCop. Um, I think I'd rather be watching the RoboCop sequels than this. <laughs> his dad calls him foolish and weak, and that a certain small person isn't where he belongs. And both people in his life are holding him down, and he needs to get rid of them. So, Adam, I'm guessing at this point, like, you're seeing Weber kind of go crazy here. Uh, you're seeing him. This is how Jack went from trying to get himself together to just going off the deep end. It's, it's starting up here. And you're still with him at this point? Yep. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just trying to take your pulse as we go I along know. here. So. If you were doing that with me, you'd need a fucking EED. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure I know where your pulse is at this point. We cut to Danny, once again making his way to room 217. And in the bathroom that we know oh so well, he walks up to the curtain, he opens it up, and sees a very decrepit, terrible makeup job woman, who, by the way, is being played by Garris' wife, Cynthia. She walks toward him, 
and he walks out only to be pulled right back in. On the surface, I know this is building suspense and trying to be scary, but this is doing nothing for me that Kubrick didn't do so much better last time. This makeup on this, Steve Johnson did do the makeup effects on this. They got a pretty decent budget for it. Jesus fucking Christ, this is just awful. See, this is... She looks like a frog. This is when the problem is the stuff that is the same is done so much of a lower quality than what we already got from Kubrick. So when you have the same thing, it is just slapping you in the face with how it's not going to live up to it. The one thing I'll say, that little jump scare at the end got me. It's the one little moment of, oh, that I've gotten throughout this entire time. Which one? When he's standing outside the room and he gets yanked back in. Oh, yeah. It just, it, it, yeah. You know, wasn't expecting it. It got me. I was like, hey, you know what? You got me with a little jump scare there. Um, but, yeah, holy shit. The, uh, and you know what? From here on out, let's just say that the 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 dead effects, the Halloween effects, the whatever these people are, does not look good. Spencer's gift That's, is all I thought. Oh, yep. my God. Yeah. It, she looks so yeah. much like a frog, I half expected her to start singing Rainbow Connection. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that... I know we haven't mentioned his camera yet. The fact that Sam Raimi was it makes an appearance. Of all yeah. things. You'd think he would at very least say, I know how to do dead makeup on a very limited budget. Let me show you how you yeah. should look. Let me show you how you should look. Um, you don't tell that to the king. You don't tell that to him in 1997. <laughs> oh, boy. Jack, meanwhile, grabs his mallet and heads out to find Danny. Wendy hears him yelling for Danny to take his medicine. She interrupts him, and they find Danny, who is not in a good state, that of Colorado. <laughs> Another oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Although this is like one of the only oh. things I can think of that does not take place in Maine. Yeah, he's going outside his realm. You're right about that. But we saw how well it worked when Shyamalan went outside of Philadelphia. <laughs> I'm getting the same feeling here. Jack reinforces that he did he, that he did not hurt Danny, as Wendy is once again doubting him. Not bullshit. I did not hit him. I did not. <laughs> they find lipstick on Danny. Lipstick, as the woman from the bathtub once again appears to him, and Jack turns things around on Wendy by saying it's not nice to be accused it now, is it? So they almost try turning it around and making Wendy be the culprit here. Jack nurses Danny's wounds and asks him about the lipstick and bruises. He tells them about the 217 lady who gave him the bruises and then kissed him and that this place is so bad that they need to get out of there. How many times did he need to be told? Get the fuck out. It's white, it's white people in a haunted house. They never fucking leave. Yeah. <laughs> That's he then tells them about the shine and that things... That, that, and that the things he can see can hurt them. Uh, Danny talks exactly like he does in the book, because in the book he tells his dad that the hotel wants his dad to do the bad thing again. Um, this is a big part of that book. In the book he's such a mature kid, but every once in a while he does act like one, like saying the bad thing. Like instead of saying he drinks, he's doing the bad thing. So that's the one reference to that here. Um, you know, but this kid can't pull that off. The one thing that would really get me on Jack's side, I was trying to pinpoint what they could have done. Have him have more conversations with his AA sponsor. Yes. Um, that, that's a really good device that allows you to have exposition without 
without making me hate him so much. Like, if we really saw him struggling and, like, actively looking for help rather than just saying, fuck it, um, I think it would have gone a long way, especially because they do – they have a good conversation at the start of the movie, and he's never seen again. Yeah, I actually, that'd be a nice way to do it. So Danny tells him about more things he has seen, which includes gangsters being killed in the hotel. And then I wish I was with them. <laughs> Jack heads up to room 217 himself, complete with his mallet. He walks in the bathroom, right up to the curtain, and sees nothing in it. He grabs a lipstick and finds some wet footprints by the door. Now there's a presence here. The lights turn dim, and Jack makes his way back, saying they need to have another one of their chats about where he's supposed to be. They once again talk about leaving in the four-person snowmobile, which, by the way, didn't look much bigger than the tricycle that, or the big wheel that Danny drove in <laughs> in, the, in the last week's film. So Danny screams that he hates them both and then runs away. Jack takes Wendy out to the snowmobile, which is now smashed, and that they are now stuck, just like the Donner Party. We cut to December 29th. Boy, Christmas must have been fun there. Uh, <laughs> Danny's outside playing in the snow. Some snow falls on the hedge animals, and they all start stalking Danny, and Jack is now bye-bye as day two ends. Again, this was the very last scene I had seen until I watched it for this podcast. And even me, as the massive Stephen King fan, as the massive King Defender, as the one who would go to school with Stephen King books under his arms, I looked at this and said, fuck it, I don't even, I don't even care. Matt, how bad are these fucking CGI animals coming after Danny like this? I'm gonna I'm gonna say something I don't think I've ever done on the show. I have no words. I like well, I it, speak, it speaks for itself. Like literally you have to watch it and say, I cannot believe somebody gave this a pass. There was nobody mm. in that room. None of those executives, none of those producers said, Hey, maybe we should do one more pass on this because Lord knows we're gonna make our money on it eventually. Yeah, if we're talking about the animals, if they're gonna look this bad, just go fucking full uh Harryhausen instead. Yeah. Yeah, well, they tried that, and apparently it didn't look as good. I mean, it's just... It's, I can only imagine. It's its unacceptable the way they look. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to say, night night two closes. You know, this is the end of it with them moving just before we get into it for night three, and so we can start another fight. My notes here, I'm having a good time, and I'm enjoying the story portion of it. Wow. Yep. Like, I am not going to say it's a better movie. I'm not going to say it's a better shot. I'm not going to say it's better acted because I'd be a fucking liar. I will say I appreciate that the... I think the story of The Shining is getting told better throughout than what we got before. So I'm going to read my notes. When, when part two ended, I wrote down, because I, I knew part three was coming, I wrote, all exposition and no scares makes Matt want to shove his foot up Stephen King's <laughs> And you wrote that over and over and over, right? <laughs> I think that's 90% of this binder from here on out. Hang on. I, I got to look. <laughs> All right. Well, I still have six pages to get through, so let's go. Uh, Wendy asks why the hedge animals aren't covered in snow. Jack goes down to check the elevator, which is making noise, and is joined by Wendy and Danny. He pushes Wendy down, and once she makes her way in the elevator, she comes to the conclusion that somebody wants them to join the party. (laughs) This is exactly where, for those that don't know, I mentioned Tower of Terror earlier. It is all about trying to get to the top of the fucking, the top of the hotel, because there's a fucking party going on. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, shit, this made me laugh. <laughs> She's got glitter and a fucking masquerade mask. Oh, my God. We cut to January 4th. Danny gets a clock working, and he makes a call to Dick Halloran to help him out. And by the way, when I say make a call, I don't mean pick up a phone and call him. <laughs> He's doing it through the shine. He then has visions of his dad attacking him with a messed up face and a CGI shot of red rum turning into murder. Hey, that shot. Meanwhile, that shine projection go he's ahead. had was so fucking strong. He brought right from fucking the blob. He brought Shawnee Smith to a fucking diner. Yes. <laughs> yes. I had to stop, pause it. Please don't remind me of remakes I'd rather be watching. <laughs> I had to stop, pause it, and take a note. I can't believe fucking Shawnee Smith is in this. Yeah. Seven years prior to Saw, here she is. Meanwhile, Dick is getting the visions while in a diner, and he wishes that 911 was the answer. So, Oh, me too. Yeah. <laughs> he gets in his pimp mobile. By the way, King had, you know, instead of concentrating on scaring us, he's having more fun making references to his own work because he gets in a 1958 Plymouth Theory. I was so fucking angry I didn't even realize that. Not that I'm going to go back and watch this and look for it. but <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's right there at your disposal if you want to go back and check it out. We cut to January 4th. Jack walks into the bar and starts up the jukebox as Danny wakes up and has visions of the guy in the dog costume. <laughs> <laughs> this fucking dog costume. King is trying so hard to scare us. This is fucking ridiculous. I might hate this more than the hedge animals, honestly. Like, when the, when the thing just looks up and goes, boo. I'm like, really? This mask looks like something you would buy at Walmart. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Like, I, I don't, again, this movie at certain points has rendered me speechless. Mm -hmm. All, like, yeah, there's all no I words. do is post screenshots of this fucking movie <laughs> to and say this speaks for itself. Drop the mic. But it is I our job like to talk about it. So from the glass, holding up that comic book, going, "How can you explain this?" <laughs> we cut to Jack, who is indeed plastered inside the bar. Grady approaches him and asks if he can pour him one more drink before he goes out into the ballroom. He tells him he has friends everywhere in the Overlook. To which Jack says, "Bottoms up," and just drinks up. Danny tells Wendy that Jack is indeed drunk and that the band is now there. And here's where we get, you know, again, as the King fan, I know if I see a, King a Stephen King cameo and I'm annoyed that there's something very wrong because his cameo as this conductor is fucking awful. By the way, this band is called the GC Band. No, <laughs> not after my name, after Gage Creed, you know, making more references to himself. Um, and this cameo is like prominently displayed in the hotel, in the actual hotel. If you walk in the hotel, you take a little tour of it and you look around. There's like pictures of him like, getting in this garb and going out there and doing this. Oh, boy. Conductor of chaos indeed. You know, if, it, if, if you want to be really happy and watch, a, I'm sure that either of you got around to it. Matt, on the third disc, there's a special feature of uh, watching this king cameo get killed. Is it called the GC bit, GC band because it feels like time is moving at four tenths of a second? Ah, <laughs> uh, God! This and, and there's other people. Frank Darabont has a cameo. Here. Yeah, Frank Darabont. Yep. 
Frank Darabont was there to let King know that he had actually gotten the rights and went ahead and he was going to work on the Green Mile. And then Gareth saw him and said, hey, why don't you do a cameo here? Okay, I'll go ahead and do that. Oh, I thought of it. It was fucking Richard Matheson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Both people who probably could have done a better job with this miniseries. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Jack I will have a lot of things to say about Frank Darabont in his movies, but um, I would have liked to have seen his take on The Shining, especially with what he did on Dream Warriors and the Blob remake, speaking of... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah parallels to the show. None, none of, all of which are better than the actual... So Jack heads to the party and is approached by a dangerous redhead. Adam, is there any other There's kind? no other kind. <laughs> <laughs> they dance until Jack sees her, what, growl? What exactly is this that she does here? We're seeing the guy and the dude in the dog costume origins... As the redhead keeps enticing him, she slaps him after he turns him down, and he then makes his way to Grady. During all this, we are seeing that Jack is actually by himself in the ballroom, and he is acting out all of this in his head. Tough stuff to pull off, but again, I don't think Weber's up to this challenge. No, I don't disagree. Like I, I like seeing that it's just him by himself. I also like seeing he never fucking drinks. We Mm -hmm. see that he never actually drinks. When we see a bottle later, that bottle is sealed. The one bottle that's there has always been empty. He never fucking drinks. It is being used as a showcase of his madness. He doesn't drink. And I Mm -hmm. actually really liked that part of it once I realized that, oh, no, he didn't. It's just part of the storytelling. Grady repeats the line to Jack that he has always been the caretaker here. It is from this conversation on that Jack gets convinced to do what he has to do to keep his family there and to keep the overlook nice. Grady tells Jack to deal with his son firmly. Jack finds the JD bottle underneath a mask because we need to keep prominently displaying this mask. And he says that he has to drink it because he's the caretaker. So, Adam, you're still with this, huh? I Not, not completely. <laughs> But, uh-huh. you know, I do like the fact that it's, you know, I understand what he's doing and why he's doing it. And that part I actually fucking like. Right. Like, I do like that it's the house, you know, it's, you know, fucking playing by the house rules. The house is telling him what he's got to do. It's an actual fucking haunted house story this time. If we're playing mm. by house rules, I'm going to go all in and get the fuck <laughs> out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack starts shouting for his family. Wendy goes down to investigate, and Garrus is once again elongating this a little too much as she walks for seemingly hours through this hotel. She finds the dog mask, and then Jack wraps his hands around her neck, and he starts accusing her of hiring George to slash his tires as Danny walks in, and he shoves him aside as well. So now Jack is finally just fully off the deep end. Wendy breaks a bottle over his head, and now the chase is on. Wendy tells Danny that it is indeed not his dad who is trying to hurt them, but it is the hotel. Wendy comes to this conclusion pretty quick, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, hasn't looked at one scrapbook, but she knows it's the hotel who's coming after them. Well, they do fix one thing in this that we all complained about last week. It took both Danny and Wendy to take Jack to the pantry. Because remember last time it was Shelley Duvall who actually dragged him over there? This time, Wendy's like, let's take him over there. And it's almost like King had seen that scene. And he's like, I want to fix that too. Let's get them both. And not just show them, put him in, like show him actually drag him all the way there. 
<laughs> it was a long walk to the fucking freezer. <laughs> oh, yeah, because they will show you every step that they took. <laughs> you, yeah. you know what I we noticed? four and a half hours. What I noticed this time, though, is Danny's here. And I was trying to remember. I'm like, you know, in, in Kubrick's, I feel like the last bit, until we're running out in the hedge maze, that Danny kind of disappears. And I'm struck that I'm seeing him here watching his dad go full-blown crazy. Yeah, and him going off the deep end, I wish he made that literally and jumped headfirst into the deep end of an empty swimming pool. We we covered the swimming pool and way in the... Never mind. Garris, Garris fixates on a lit-by-flashlight face of Weber as Jack convinces Grady to let him out. Dick calls Harry an MFA, mighty fine American. <laughs> ABC, oh, remember, public syndication. <laughs> <sighs> the King dialogue. Uh, sometimes it just it blows my mind how. God, this reminded me of um, like when TV show when movies are edited for TV. This almost felt like a Disneyfication of a Stephen King novel. Like it's like remember the Titans where they took all the teeth out. Like instead of saying "God damn," he says "blunt nickel." I'm like, who the fuck talks like that? <laughs> you know what? You're more right than you know because this was bought by ABC, was bought by Disney. So right when this was being made, so you may be more right about that than um, than you know. Wendy makes her way down and sees that Jack is now gone and that the spirits are loose. She finds the door that says Red Rum on it and walks in the bar, which also has Red Rum on it. My God, guys, is any of this working for you? Or Matt, I'm not going to go to you because I'm pretty sure you're just <laughs> checking your counter. Adam, this is you're seeing Jack go off the deep end. You're seeing him stalk his family here. We get a long scene of Wendy and Jack talking over here. How are you feeling at this point? When we went through and watched and discussed the Carrie movies, it got to the point where we kind of had to discuss and compare the end of those movies because they're such a dramatic, such a major scene, and you knew that's what you were getting. When we get here to The Shining, it's kind of the same thing haven't been shy that I've liked a lot of the buildup. I've liked a lot of where we're going to. I've liked the storytelling elements. Now that we're going into the crazy last day, one, I fucking appreciate it's last day because at least I know where the fuck we are in a time frame here. Um, but this cannot hold a candle to Nicholson and Duvall going through the fucking overlook. It just, it just can't. This is supposed to be the horror scary part, the thriller part, and I don't hate it, but Holy shit, is a giant step down. Jack appears amongst the noise of the spirits and attacks Wendy with the dreaded croquet mallet. More scary than an axe. A croquet <laughs> mallet. Now, this was from the book. This is what they did. This is what he had in the book. So, he's, again, taking his prose literal. I thought I was going to hate the mallet, but I, I actually don't. I, I was prepared really? to hate the mallet. And especially because I watched the trailer... And the trailers and the fucking still images show him where it's the fucking, like, dream of him with the fucking, like, milk eyes and crazy-ass makeup holding it. Mm -hmm. So I was expecting that, and it's not that when he's actually chasing him doing it. So it's not an axe, but I, I thought I was going to fucking loathe this croquet mallet, and I don't. Of all the semantics that are in this movie, I'm not going to argue about a fucking croquet mallet. It is what it is. I, I guess... I don't, I'm not even going to reach for subtext because I don't, I don't have the stamina anymore. I just want to so he takes, a, <laughs> <laughs> he takes a croquet mallet and he hits Wendy right in the stomach with it. She falls. Mm. 
And this is the part that ABC said, you got to tone this down. Because apparently he really attacked this. He really attacked Wendy in this scene. And they made it a couple hits instead of a number of them. But in the in the book, I mean, she's crippled it, from it. It she, looks cut and She edited. still feels the effects in Dr. Sleep, which takes place years later. It looks like he's swinging at her. And then I can't tell if he's missing her, missing her on purpose, if he's actually hitting her. So it's cut in a way that is kind of just unfulfilling because I don't know what you know, did he fucking hit her leg? Did he hit the floor? Did he hit her in the stink? I couldn't tell half the time. Yeah. So she throws a croquet ball at his face. <laughs> That's real, folks. She runs right into Lloyd, who disintegrates right in front of her, and then Jack again. So we're seeing all of this come to literal life here. Garrus, amongst all of this, and if we're trying to get rid of that Kubrick film, if we're trying to make people forget it, why is Garrus staging a shot that is almost frame by frame, the same shot of Jack coming through the door? Except, instead of here's Johnny, we get the extremely frightening boo. boo. Oh, God. Nope. Grady reappears and tells Jack to take care of Halloran as he walks out, taking lights out with his mallet. Dick shows up, which once again wakens the ire of the hedge animals. <laughs> Goddamn hedge animals. And you're right, Adam. You know, here's the, here's the thing. If you just cut to the outside and we saw that they were surrounding the place, that might be, I don't want to say frightening, but it would be unnerving. Mm-hmm. We actually see them go to the, to the hotel and surround it, and it just looks so silly. So silly. Jack then, and <laughs> yet another set of just terrible King dialogue. Jack says congratulations to Dick as he's now the publisher's clearing house winner. <sighs> as his prize is a is a shot to the gut with the mallet. This is fucking Shyamalan type writing. Like this is just cringeworthy. This shit. Like King loves to do the pop culture references, which by the way do not help this movie date at all. But like, you know, Jack Nicholson, here's Johnny was an ad lib. Here King is trying to do something that is like it's like when I, I thought of like when Uncle Ben was killed in The Amazing Spider-Man Uncle Ben gets shot in that and instead of going with great power comes great responsibility they do they just ro- go around it and they don't even say it here King is trying to give the exact same feeling trying to give something some different emphasis and this whole last talking scene it's just it's like everything in this movie it's just elongated and not frightening so the ghosts reappear and tell Jack that his son is of higher importance and convinces him to go after him. So unlike the Kubrick version, Dick is going to live through this. Danny makes his way to Jack, and in the peak of his rage, he convinces him to put the mallet down. And like that, apologies and tears are flowing again. He tells Jack that he hasn't checked the boiler yet. And as he goes down, Danny convinces his dad to fight the spirits with the kissy-kissy line. <sighs> It's really creepy when it's fucking a father to the son. Yeah, like, it is Thank really you. creepy. Thank you, because I'm watching this, and this 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 was a line these two made these two said to each other before they fucked. So now he's telling it to his son, and yeah, you're absolutely right. It's so fucking creepy. And in the book, Jack kind of sacrifices himself because he just says get away or something. Like the book is played off differently than the end here. The way Jack ends this, and Becomes a force ghost, which hold on a second, folks, that's coming. Um, I was to say he got redeemed. There is like no re- let's, let's put it this way: there's no redemption arc for Jack in that book. He just becomes a part of the hotel, and he's still a part of the evil hotel. 
here. There's this way elongated, just go save yourself, Danny, save yourself. And, you know, this whole, I'm going to shove them off long enough for you to get away. Uh, doesn't work. Again, okay. Kubrick has overshadowed you, sir. All right. So in the book, I do remember this. It's almost like he has like one moment of control enough to yes. say like, hey, Danny, get out of here. And he's sucked up with the hotel. Um, the only reason Danny doesn't die is because he says, oh, by the way, the boiler's about to blow, so the hotel goes with it. Like It's almost like the hotel can't process it. Here, the evil is completely gone, and he conscientiously says, I'm going to die with the hotel. Uh, even though he has not committed yes. any crimes, really, like attempted murder. I'm sure, they could, Dick could get him on that, but it's the... Spielbergian level of schmaltz that we get with the psychic goodbye and they're crying. This was so saccharine, even Frank Capra would be like, Jesus Christ, get the sugary taste out of my mouth, you fags. Um, King completely shits the bed on giving him a tragic, thoughtful ending. Like, it is, it is the ultimate example of trying to talk the talk and walk the walk. And he, like Misery, got hobbled and couldn't fucking walk. It just fell off at the start. It's so fucking terrible. Yeah. It, I, I appreciate it that Danny kind of broke him of it. You know, the you're not my daddy, broke him free, send him down there. But, yeah, the, uh, you know what, Matt, put it, I, I think I got fucking diabetes from the, from the smalls here. You know, it was so sugar-coated. Too far. Way too far. We haven't gone too far yet, folks, because now we cut to 10 years later. Danny is now graduating high school. As Dick shows up looking more pimp-like than ever, by the way. <laughs> you know, in this entire retrospective, I don't think we will ever see something as cheesy as what we see next. And the funny thing about this is you listen to that commentary. Everybody on that commentary is raving about this. Weber, King, Garrus, they're all like, yes, we changed this ending, and it works so much better. Halloran hey, sits next to Wendy. Before you get there, go ahead. Garrett, did you know what was coming? No, oh, I, I totally forgot about this. Did you? Okay. I, just yeah, say, I, I didn't know okay, either. I had no I idea either. until it got here. Okay. No. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. Dick sits next to Wendy and asks her if there is any new man in her life, because I think he wants her a part of <laughs> Of his of his ring, I, that's what I'm getting from this. Like he wants to make her a fucking hooker. Gonna here. make her shine. Yeah. Instead of a sleepwalker, she's gonna be a a night a night stalker. There you go, a night walker. Danny, looking like Tony, walks right up on stage <gasps> as he says he loves Dick and Wendy, as his dad congratulates him, and blows him a kiss. Yes, I just said that. It's, it's fucking Return of the Jedi. It's exactly Return of the Jedi. Oh, God. Return of the Jedi was so much better than this. This is fucking... It, I never thought how cheesy King could get. As somebody who read The Man all my life, give or take 10 or 11 years, this is the difference between 1977 King and 1997 King. Like, 1977 was just pessimistic. He never went this far. This is God fucking awful. It caught me Terrible. as soon as they said his name, too, because it was like Danny Anthony. And in my head, 
I'm looking at the t- yep. I'm looking at the TV and I still did a fucking whiplash double take spit take all at one time, and I was just you got no 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 holy fuck he's Tony. And that is from the book it, 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 that his middle name is Anthony in the book, but it's more implied again implication. And so, you know, we we, we kind of think it's an app, it's a version of his more grown-up self but we never get told that here we're actually told that as he matures into that fucking person oh this fucking this is the worst i don't know if we'll ever get this cheesy this entire retrospective no i i don't think and i also don't think look king has sort of a, a spielberg parallel where he gets criticized a lot for his endings this might be a Everything else is blank. I can't think of one that is so aggressively terrible and just the complete antithesis of the point of his book. Because by definition, he is betraying his quote of playing fair with the characters. This is a narrative cheat of the worst ilk. Um, Not only does he give Jack a get-out-of-jail-free card... Yes. Um... This whole thing where Danny is Tony and Scott, like Danny, Danny was Tony all along, or, or the inverse, um, without any real force. Like, oh, oh my fucking god, this is not playing fair at all. This is I'm gonna tear Kubrick a new one for not giving Jack a real shot at redemption. But guess what? I'm not gonna do the same thing in an organic way. Because if you read the theory where when he wrote the book, it was basically King coming to terms with his alcoholism and the effect it had on his family. This happy ending almost feels like an, an epitaph to that, because he couldn't really do it in the book. Um, unfortunately, because, you know, hindsight's literally twenty twenty because it's 20 years after that book, I, don't, I understand why he wanted Jack to have that same kind of, you know, beating his demons. But, like I said, it's not playing fair, and it's also just, what the fuck? That, that's like... You could put that underneath my wet blanket. It's just, what the fuck? <laughs> underneath, at, at this ending. Like, it, it's for sure that, like, the only thing that would have made this worse is if there were actual Ewoks, like, in the crowd. Um, you guys keep making the Return of the Jedi. I, I do not see that at all here. What I see is a guy who would write Hearts in Atlantis. I don't see a guy who would write The Shining. Yeah, although, God, I fucking love Hearts in Atlantis, though. Wow. Oh, wow. Wow, that's going to be a yeah, discussion be for 20 years I, down the line. I, I, your, your kid's going to be as old as Tony by the time we get to that. No, one. like, I uh, fucking, like, nine-year-old Anton Yelchin hold his own against Anthony Hopkins. You mean to tell me you couldn't have found a convincing child actor to go up against Stephen fucking Weber? <laughs> <laughs> so we cut to the burned-down hotel, which looks like it's completely rebuilt as credits roll on Stephen King's The Shining a four-and-a-half-hour ass-numbing experience. <laughs> Scale of one to ten, boys. What do we give Hearts in Atlantis? Adam, you go ahead and go. Sir. You want me to go first? All right. Uh, no, actually, let's get, let's get Matt out of the way because I know he wants to unleash. Matt, you go ahead and go, sir. Let me read the full quote of Stephen King when he was asked... And this is actually a quote that he got from James Kane, although a lot of people say Raymond Chandler came up with it, was about 
what, when he talked about writers, you know, rewriting, reinterpretations, he talked about that your story start with a plan, and then you let it develop. And he said, if you play fair with the characters, and let them play their parts according to their strengths and weaknesses, you can never go wrong. It's impossible. It's impossible to watch this fucking miniseries and think it's better than the Kubrick version. I'm sorry. This is even more, like, I need to apologize to Wes Craven. Like, <laughs> rest in peace, sir, but... I thought that was the ultimate, like, sign of condemnation about shitting up, like, rectifying what you thought were misdeeds for your franchise. This takes the the cake, hits it with a croquet mallet, lights it on fire, and then throws it into a bur- into a uh, into a boiler for it to explode. I have never, I don't think I've ever seen an ego this this out of control since M Night Shyamalan, like at, at his worst, like leaning in the water levels of of arrogance and, and self self grandizing. After all those years, you still make such a, a problematic adaptation. Just because you are the original person and you're adapting your, your book, you can respect the original text and still suck. And I don't know if there's any adaptations in this in this miniseries in this retrospective, and boy there's gonna be some crap. Don't get me wrong. Uh, there's also plenty of other stuff that I, I can't stand. I don't think there's anything as openly awful as this. This, to me, is the my most, based off memory, this is my most hated Stephen King adaptation. I feel solidified in that statement with this second viewing after after so long. Compare this to Lady in the Water. I think I was as angry watching this as I was watching Lady in the Water. Wow. Th- this is, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do it. I, I was wrestling with whether or not I'm going to say this. Because it's four and a half hours. That, that's the deciding thing. This is the worst fucking thing I've reviewed on this show. I will never watch this again. Everyone associated with this, I'm officially giving you a big demerit on your report cards. And you cannot take extra credit. You cannot stay after class. You cannot have your parents sign a note. It is staying on your record for as long as I live. And that includes Stephen King most of all. Because this does not happen without his, his oversight and without his, his pen. There's nothing believable in this. This is weak and hollow bullshit. I am giving this a fucking zero on ten. This thing, the same score I gave New Mutants. This thing could go fuck itself into a black hole of obscurity, and I will never talk about it again. I hate you for making me watch this again. <laughs> go fuck yourself, everybody. Uh, um, Adam? <laughs> Jesus. Before Matt throws himself off a cliff, can you uh, can you redeem this a little bit? God damn, I gotta follow that motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Hey, you 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 guys, that hey, let's not go first. Yeah, let's, <laughs> must like, must I can't like, wait till we get to the Children of the Corn sequels. That's all I gotta say. Well, I haven't seen those, so this is subject to change. And if those are worse, I may quit this show. <laughs> I don't know if Sting's gonna have a, I don't have Sting. <laughs> it's been late. Um, I gotta get up and uh, I gotta get up three in the morning. Um, I don't know if King's gonna have a better miniseries that we're gonna go through. That's literally how I think about it. I I don't hate this. It fulfilled part. It fulfilled the part of me that was unfulfilled with Kubrick's. Though the parts of that that I really liked, which was the movie making, are obviously absent here. Uh, this is a TV miniseries budget, and it fucking shows. Um, and it's got TV actors, though De Mornay 
was obviously a, you know, movie star at the time. I don't know, star. She, yeah, fuck it. She was a movie star at the time. But it, this is made for TV, and, and it shows. However, I do feel that the family is a better family unit than we got before. I feel the story of The Shining is better represented here than it was with Kubrick. I understand what pissed off Stephen King because, yes, Kubrick made an amazing fucking movie. However, yes, it's hollow. This movie tells that story. However, the fucking movie-making elements are completely missing. So, yeah, it's it's obviously got a fuck ton of issues. But from a drama, which is kind of how I sat and played this out. And again, I didn't watch this all in one shot, so I got it over three different days, so my ass wasn't numb. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe that was beneficial. Um, but I feel, it told the, I feel that it told a better story. I feel that the performances were lesser and different. I feel that they were written differently. I feel they were cast differently, sometimes to the betterment, sometimes to the detriment. The TV budget obviously fucking took a croquet mallet to the knee of how some of this fucking looked. But it works for me. If it was on, I wouldn't fucking rush to the remote. Um, I, I don't hate it. I'm not going to rush to fucking watch it again, but I also wouldn't rush to turn it off. So I think it's going to be better than a lot of other King we're going to watch. I really do. Um, I'm going to give it a six and a half. Same exact score I gave Kubrick Shining. You, sir, are fired. Hey, uh, but I this... gave Kubrick's Shining a nine. You did. You know, one of King's many deterrence from Kubrick's version. He said it was made by a guy who thinks too much and feels too little. I think with this version of The Shining, King proved to be the polar opposite of that exact statement. This is made by a guy who two years later would suffer an accident that damn near killed him. And I think that pessimistic part of King would come out a little later. But we also being told a story by a guy who wrote The Shining 20 years before and was writing shit like Hearts in Atlantis. And yes, that will be a fight, Matt, once we get to that fucking story. I just think at four and a half hours, this is way too long. I think it is poorly miscast. I think Rebecca Mornay was a good choice for Wendy, but I don't think she's given much more to do than Shelley Duvall was given. And I think America proved to be more like me and Matt. Because first night, this thing was on the air, gangbusters. Once again, got a lot of viewership. And then it steadily declined after that. And I, and a lot of them, like me, saw the hedge animals come after Danny and said, nope, fuck this, we're not going to even bother watching. We'll just watch the Kubrick Shining. We'll just go rent that instead. In fact, I do remember that getting rented a lot when I was working at the video store and this was on. People were like, yeah, let me remember that thing. And I, and I think that's how people should remember this. I, I, I will say this, though. I am glad there are two versions of this out there. I'm glad that there's one that basically gives the book a middle finger, and there's one that adheres so heartily to the book. I think it's good that people have those versions to grasp onto. And, Adam, I respect you being on this podcast and having the balls to say that you liked this version as well because it is more adherent to the book, and I think there, it's good that there's two versions out there. This is so hard to get through, and I had no idea about this ending, and holy fucking shit. I hate myself for having to <laughs> – for putting myself through this. Yeah, I'm not going to go as low as Matt because that is safe for shit like New Mutants. Um, Fuck you. But I'm, <laughs> yeah, I agree with Adam. <laughs> 
I'll go three. I just think I, I think the heart is there. I think Garrus, while he struggles to adhere to the king himself, Mr. King, a man who has given way too much power, there's a few creative shots here, and there's a couple jolts, but there's the wrong kind of jolts the majority of, and I just, I, this is a movie. I, I have the DVD. I'll probably never watch it again. It's going to be in my case because, you know, that's what we do. I keep these in my, in my DVD case, but yeah, there's, there's no way I'll ever watch this again. So three out of 10. So I do have an addendum that I want to add is that I compare. So, so two things. Number one, I hate that you broke your miniseries rule and TV rule on this show for this bullshit. Um, (laughs) Uh, I did it for Carrie, but yeah. Uh, just, well, yeah. I don't forgive you for that either. That's that's two strikes <laughs> uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I compare adapting Stephen King. It's sort of like adapting Shakespeare, where you can have you can keep the text, but context like context and setting is everything. Like I think of like the Kubrick version and this, I would compare it to like the Zeffirelli and Bob Blackman Romeo and Juliet, where you got one that sort of a traditional adaptation, and then you got one where it's literally the text just in a modern setting, and in both cases, the original version is far superior to the uh, re-adaptation, if you will. Um, I would love to see a third take, to be perfectly honest. Just keep Stephen King far enough away, but give him enough oversight to where, like... You know what's funny? I I think there are movies that are borrowed from The Shining that that do The Shining better than both movies. Like, I think Hereditary, about that whole, like, dissension of family from that results in tragedy and other influences, sort of gets at the heart of The Shining, to me, closer than either of the than either of these adaptations do. Well, they were talking for a while about doing another miniseries, but this time they're going to do the origins of the hotel. We'll see how the ghosts came to be, uh, see how... That, see, that woman that Adam was so adamant about seeing the origins of, uh, we would see that. But then those talks died down pretty quick. And then, lo and behold, in 2013, King came out with a sequel to The Shining called Dr. Sleep. And then Mike Flanagan was the one who adapted that, which is the movie we will cover next week. Adam, what do you remember about Dr. Sleep? Have you seen Dr. Sleep yet? I know that it came out, and because I have not watched The Shining in 20 years, I never watched Dr. Sleep. So I'm actually really looking – and I didn't want to because I knew one day I'd be revisiting The Shining. I think around the time that I rewatched this last Halloween, you were like, hey, 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 I got something planned. I was like, fuck, I guess I'll wait. So <laughs> I'm really happy that it's on HBO Max. I just got to decide which cut I'm going to be watching on it. I'll be watching both. Okay. Though, Matt, part of my, and Garrett, part of my score for this movie, though, might be explained. And Matt, Garrett can completely validate this, and you brought it up earlier. I fucking love New Nightmare, which may explain why I don't hate Shining. Yeah, you do love New Nightmare, nope. which is why you weren't on right. the show. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Garrett, if we learned on the show, it's that you can't be right all the time. <laughs> Mr. Goudreau, Dr. Sleep is coming out. Were you excited for it? I we were podcasting we were podcasting together at the time. What were you uh, what were you thinking going into Dr. Sleep? I was very excited. I, I was a, I'm a big Mike Flanagan fan. Um the one thing I will say about him is up to that point I feel like all of his movies got better. 
I saw an evolution of the filmmaker. And the movie he did before Dr. Sleep was a Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. Um, yep. Of a book that for years people thought was unfilmable. Uh, much like Dr. Sleep in a lot of ways. I've never read the book. I've only seen the movie. Um, if you recall, that year when we did our podcast, it was on my top ten. It was. Um, I, I very much liked it. But I will say I've only seen it the one time. And I did purchase the director's cut. I'm curious to watch it because it is about a half hour longer. Yes, it is. And I have memories of reading the book. I read it in two or three sittings. And I remember seeing the movie. And I'll just say this. After reading the book, I was not looking forward to seeing the movie. And that's where I'll leave it until next week when we cover that movie. But I do not have fond memories of this story at all. But I have read the book since. And it will be fresh on my mind when we get into the actual movie. Maybe I'll have different feelings. I don't know. But it was not on my top ten. In fact, it might have been on my bottom ten of that year. (laughs) So, But I do respect Mike Flanagan as a director. I do like the mood he builds. Unlike there are things that are paid off with the mood that he builds and it's going it, to, I remember it being just so polarizing to people who love the shining, hate the shining. And one thing I'll give these two movies that we just watched boys is I think where, what it comes down to is I think people who read the book first are going to not love this version, but actually really like this version that we saw today and the ones who saw the Kubrick movie first and didn't read the book are going to love that movie more. Adam, you are the exception to the rule in that you hadn't read the book and yet you liked this version better. So yeah. that's kind of interesting. But those are where fans tend to um, – and I'm a member of a few King fan clubs and fan sites and such. And that's where I think the majority of people lie. And when it comes to Dr. Sleep – it is pretty much right down the middle. So that'll be next week. Boys, Matt, I am sorry I put you through this. Hopefully Mike Flanagan will help you feel better about this uh, this part of the retrospective as a whole. But I thank you, gentlemen, for going over Stephen King's The Shining with me. And until next week, podcasting for Binge Media means never having to say you're sober. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, no sh- Wow. <laughs> A little slow tonight, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is, Mr. Torrance. What'll it be? I'm awfully glad you asked me that, Lloyd. Because I just happen to have two 20s and two 10s right here in my wallet. I was afraid they were going to be there till next April. So here's what. You slip me a bottle of bourbon... A little glass and some ice. You can do that, can't you, Lloyd? The Binge Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. Congratulations, Dick! Remember what Mr. Halloran said? It's just like pictures in a book, Candy. It isn't real. Voice narration done by Adam. 
Now, do you think you can handle that? And are you concerned about me? <laughs> of course I am! Of course you are! Have you ever thought about my responsibilities? Oh, Dick, what are you talking about? Have you ever had a single moment's thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers? Has it ever occurred to you that I have agreed to look after the Overlook Hotel until May the 1st? Does it matter to you at all that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract, in which I have accepted that responsibility? Do you have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you? The Binge Movie Aftertaste is edited by Garrett. I'm sure she'll be absolutely fascinated when I tell her about it. She's a uh, confirmed ghost story and horror film addict. <laughs> <laughs>
See, you could have it where every time they look out the windows, they move or they're in a different position or they're inching closer, yeah. inching closer to the house so that every t- they're trapped in the house. And every time they look outside, they're fucking creeping closer. Shit, that would work. Yeah, implication. Yep. And by the way, that puppet episode, no plot twist is as good that M. Night Shyamalan has ever come up with is as good as the plot twist in that puppet show episode. It's fucking brilliant. I recommend people check that out. Sidebar, spoiler alert, because I can't remember. What was the big twist? The big twist was the puppet wasn't out to get them. He was out to kill the ghosts that were after them. And he just turned out to be a, a, just a complete asshole. I remember the episode. I don't remember the full details. I remember... Yeah. Oh, God, I want to do a Buffy yeah. retro now. That'd be so much... <laughs> I started to, then I just stopped yeah, when, I was, when I was working for the Amiga. I'll have to watch that show one day. Yeah, you do. I've been trying to get you to do it for 10 years now. I've never, yeah. I've never seen a one. <laughs> I know. Oh, God. It's fucking brilliant. Uh, Jack starts hearing the voice of his dad. Mm-hmm. We see that he never actually drinks. When we see a bottle later, that bottle is sealed. The one bottle that's there has always been empty. He never fucking drinks. It is being used as a showcase of his madness. He doesn't drink. And I mm-hmm. actually really liked that part of it once I realized that, oh, no, he didn't. It's just part of the storytelling. Uh, fuck. <laughs> he collapsed. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> That sums it up. I think so. So, <laughs> I'm so mad. And I'm tired, which is not a good combination. I, I, my guess is that Matt's alcohol is not sealed. Uh, we crazy. What alcohol? There's none left. I'm sorry. That was just so funny. All right, so Grady. I, I thought of like when Uncle Ben was killed in The Amazing Spider-Man. You knew you had to do it, and then he gave us just a horrible line that was supposed to replace, you know, um, what was the famous line that Uncle Ben said? Again, I forget. With great power comes oh, great responsibility. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's trying power to. Comes bad screenwriting. <laughs> Once again, eat before you talk, Matt. Please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, yeah. So Uncle Ben gets. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at patreon.com slash binge media. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget. Shut up, I'm wasted. <laughs> <laughs>